This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. This is the show where we give you the information, the latest and the greatest, what you need to know. In order to live your life, you know, none of us were born with an owner's manual, so we have to learn it as we go. We try to bring you information to get you in the know. How about that? Uh, Today, by the way, Steven Spielberg, we're going to be talking about a new book out on his life, Steven Spielberg, A Life in Films, and uh, the author of the book is going to take us through the history of Spielberg, his greatest, his most popular films, what makes him Possibly the best director of all time. Is this our this is our chips music as we're driving up? We're the just, freeway it's Hollywood in, in Hollywood. <laughs> it's Hollywood talk, so you're getting some Hollywood music. It's actually not uh, when I pressed on it wasn't what I thought it was. Oh, it wasn't, but it's still applicable. Uh, Jaws. We're talking. I mean, Jaws. Big Schindler's List. Saving Private Ryan. Catch me if you can. Artiful, artificial intelligence. Boo. By the way, we're going to also be talking later in the show about artificial intelligence with McKenna Bouse, Bouse in the house. By the way, you never answered which of his films were, were your favorite. Well, or you was know, it's, your favorite? it's really funny because I loved Jaws, but when it, Jaws came out, I was young and it was pretty startling. So oh, yeah. It, it was like over my head in scary fear. If I watched it at night, yeah. I would have nightmares. But if really? I watched it during the day, I would not. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great way to look at it. Indiana Jones may be my favorite for the one that I loved the most when I watched it as a kid. So which of the four the is your favorite? First, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark. It just blew me away as a kid. I mean, he almost got squished by a rolling ball. And he almost uh, exploded. But he decided not to look. That's the Ark of the Covenant. Which is so hard to not look. It's like this big cut on my chin from a razor today. Everyone wants to look at it. Terry can't get it, take his eyes off of it. He calls it my third eye. Constantly blinking. (sighs) Steven Spielberg. We'll be talking about it. My shaving practices. We'll get to him. Um... McKenna Bouse is going to talk about artificial intelligence. Not the movie, though. Not the movie. But what what if what if computers and artificial intelligence could figure out your personality, how you write from all of your writings, from all of your social media? And then eventually, what if after you die for the next 100 years, this A.I. could be talking for you, sending tweets to your kids? Society would be blessed. (laughs) Or would they? Maybe not. We'll find out with McKenna Baus. Get into all that fun. By the way, also today celebrating Napping Day. Napping Day, by the way, different than Nappy Day. Nappy mm. would be a diaper in the UK. Right. Not talking about that. We're talking about napping, which is a good sleep, a good nap, just a rest. How I like long? Sh- Give me a length. Uh, I think all I ever need is 15 minutes, 20 minutes. What's a nap for you? Okay. It's just a nap. I mean, you know, any if, if, if you get up. And your body's like aching, and you can't. I had a nap on the weekend that I, I For, think somebody drugged me. I did too. 
You wake up, you're like, oh. Yeah, like, I could not wake up. And yeah. for some reason, my pillow was wet. So wait, what is this nap thing that you're talking about? It's that thing. So you know what you do in the third hour of the show when I'm interviewing the guest? And you always put your head down on the console and just go to that happy place? Is that what that's called? That's I thought nap. that was part of my job description. Nope. It's napping. Happy napping day. We're celebrating it. Uh, you know, more and more. Naps are healthier than ever. I went to Argentina, lived in Argentina where you have a siesta. Very good for you. Every in the middle of the day, two to three hour break. I had a siesta last night with some salsa and guacamole. It was delicious. Yeah. That's a food siesta. You also would eat during the siesta, and then you'd go sleep it off. Heaven. Heaven on earth. So Spielberg, napping, artificial intelligence, and of course the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on that we really should be paying attention to? House Speaker Paul Ryan said Sunday on CBS that he can't say how many people will lose health coverage under the Republican bill to repeal the Affordable Care Act, as it is up to the people to acquire coverage if they want it. How many people are going to lose coverage under this new? I can't answer that question. It's up to people. Here's the premise of your question. Are you going to stop mandating people buy health insurance? People are going to do what they want to do with their lives because we believe in individual freedom in this country. So the question is, are we providing a system where people have access to health insurance if they choose to do so? And the answer is yes. Ryan expects the Congressional Budget Office will likely have a report on the cost of the health bill and the number of people it will cover uh, today, Ryan agreed with President Donald Trump's characterization that the 2018 midterm elections will be a bloodbath for Republicans if they don't pass this bill. So that's something to look forward to. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of things about our relations with Russia that trouble me a lot, Senator John McCain said in an interview on CNN Sunday. There's a lot of aspects of this whole relationship with Russia and Vladimir Putin that requires further scrutiny. And so far, I don't think the American people have gotten all the answers. In fact, I think there's a lot more shoes to drop from the, this centipede. Oh, boy. John McCain Ooh, continuing that's on That's a here, lot of shoes. Making outright allegations against specific individuals. He declined to do such things. So there's no names being dropped here. But he uh, went on talking about the investigation ties between Trump and the Kremlin. Top lawmakers on the House Intelligence Committee want all evidence relating to Trump Tower wiretapping turned over today. There you go. So we'll get this done. Get this thing done. Off the table. A winter storm is expected to bring heavy snow and blizzard-like conditions to parts of the East Coast starting today. According to the National Weather Service, the blizzard watch will be in effect Monday through Tuesday evening. Between 12 and 18 inches of snow could cover the region following what has been relatively mild winter for the area. This February had the most above-average temperatures across the globe since meteorologists started keeping record. A nor'easter. Yeah, that's what they call them. Yeah. They're going to get schmacked. <laughs> but it'll be fun to watch on TV. And actually, people get on Snapchat yeah. and record these things, or they get on Facebook Live, and you just watch people walking around the streets. It's kind of interesting. This is exciting. Make sure you Snapchat it. We don't want to miss any That'd of it. Be great. And finally, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. It depends. Apparently, there's a big debate about this. First-year doctors will mm. be allowed to work 24-hour shifts in hospitals across the United States starting July 1st, when a much-debated cap limit that the physician yeah. – it used to be 16 consecutive hours for patient care is lifted. So the cap's being lifted. The organization that oversees their training announced on Friday, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education said oh, no, the no, changes no. will enhance patient safety because there will be fewer handoffs from doctor to doctor. It'll, it also – longer shifts will improve <laughs> the new doctor's training by allowing them to follow their patients for more extended periods, especially in critical hours after admission. Yeah, but they'll be useless. 
24 hours straight. So let me get this straight. Yeah, go ahead. There, we, we don't let pilots fly more than how many hours? Eight hours, I think, maybe, maybe yeah, a day, yeah. maybe. Uh, we don't let truck drivers. Bus drivers. Bus drivers. Yeah. Uh, Pretty much any kind of uh, like, huh. licensed driver, yeah. there's a limit on how many we hours. We don't even let our school teachers teach longer than so many hours a day. That's for budget reasons. So. But we're okay letting a doctor. First-year doctors. So these are residents. Yeah. Um, these are residents. We're okay with them working 24-hour shifts instead of just the 16-hour shifts. Yes. So as not to have as many handoffs. As the uh, article I read, the backbone of most hospitals and medical centers are residents. Yeah, by the way. Right? This they is, do a lot of the, the work and the, the, the this, other doctors right. the work doctors like 60 hours a week. The doctors that cost $300,000 are yeah. handing it off to the doctors that cost the hospital 40000 Right. And then they work them now 24 hours. I'm going to bet if we went and asked the residents, because I've had family members that were residents – if this is a good idea, I'm going to bet they'll say no. What do you think about as a patient? Is that concerning to you? Not that they've a... been on the clock for 24 straight? Yeah. You mean in the middle of a physical? No. Just... I want you awake. <laughs> sort of nod off. It's just an embarrassing moment where you're like, sir, are we done? <laughs> what? <Huh? laughs> Can I get dressed again? That's just... like nuts. Yeah. So it used to be 16, but on July 1st, it'll be 24 hours that a resident can be on, on it call, makes, I guess. It makes no working. sense. And surge, I mean, these are surgeons. These are... These are just residents. So well, but, but, what... well, but resident, that, so you go to you go to surgery residency, okay. and so you're going to be in surgeries. You're assisting. Assisting. You're right, going but, to be still, diagnosing. Then when... you have the hardest thing about all this, you got to chart. You got to chart stuff. So when all you... the charting's going to be off. This is crazy. So when the chest cavity is open, you don't need someone falling asleep. Even yeah. if they are just like the number two, number well, three guy in there. That's what grandma used to teach us. Right. They're just doing this so that they can charge you overtime. You that's get double billed. That's exactly it. We're wow. working overtime. So what's going on? That was a, I always thought that was a bad idea anyway. We, there is, in fact, we've had teachers or uh, professors on our show like that are sleep experts. Yes. It's not good. This isn't. There is a point your brain just doesn't work right. And you don't do this enough. If you're not getting enough sleep, your brain can't even organize all your thinking. So it's got to actually limit their learning, mm-hmm. which they're supposed to be doing in residency. They're saying the, the, the accreditation organization says that it actually help influence it because they're going to have longer periods with their like training doctors that they're following sure. around during residency. No. So they'll have more – Interaction with them, and, and it'll be okay yeah. because their supervisory doctors will be able to watch and judge their behavior to see if it is an issue. Okay, let's just get that same board yeah. to work 24-hour shifts no. and stay awake, They're and let's board. see what decisions they make. That's crazy. Can't they, can't they focus more on getting you into your appointment on time? Yeah. No. That's, that should be a priority. Yeah, but that's done by the people that have only eight hours of work and have had a good night's sleep. Yeah. But and they have to then hand it off to the doctors that are too sleepy to get everyone in on time. And they're making like ten bucks an hour, so it's fine. Oh, that's crazy! What's happening to this world? So if you have any surgery, I'd say get it done before. Make sure you don't have a resident July first, or skip the residency. Oh, you know bro. what, though, if you're having a baby, which we will be in a couple of months here, we are. 
Well, my wife is. The guys always include themselves in that. I it's thought just... he would meant like me. Like yeah. I'm, this I'm is like, wow. an equal opportunity uh, experience. So, cool. are we sharing? Are we going to live stream it? <laughs> no. Okay. You are not invited. And you know, Good. if it were up to us, yeah. we we would choose to have less interference yeah. from doctors and nurses because they always come, you know, inevitably they'll come into the room just as you're dozing off mm-hmm. at one thirty in mm-hmm. the morning. Yeah. Yeah. It's time to just, you know, poke at you for no reason before, you know, we'll interrupt your sleep and then leave. I'm not sure your wife's going to doze off. Oh, no, no. Much. I've been there twice. He's talking about him. Oh, yeah, He's yeah. over in this chair in the corner, and I the doctor's talking to the wife. He's like, I'm sleeping over here, Are people. you kidding? Can you not turn the light on? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad we're through that stage of life. Now I just get to stay up late because my kids don't want to go to bed. Now you can have computer babies. Ah, I better check on them. Uh, for those that didn't hear us in the first hour, I'm running a new city. Did you name your city? I, I will right now. I Into just, the ground. I've named, <laughs> wow. That was rude. I've named it Town Town. Town Town, okay. But not Townsendville. Or... No, but I think when it gets bigger, we'll have to make it. Yeah, Townsendville. <gasps> okay. Why don't you call it Townton or Townton Abbey? Townton Abbey. I'll do that next. I'm, I'm going to have because I'm pretty sure this will get up into the millions. Yeah, right yeah. now, I've only got ten thousand uh, citizens, but I got a great house. Got to make sure you get that birth rate up. Not to brag, but my my house is bigger than everyone else's house of in Towntown. You're the mayor. And they say a lot of really positive things, and I have a lot of happy, green, smiling faces. Can you change your title? I don't think so yet. Like Chief Potentate or something like that? Ooh, but that would be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really proud of it. Chancellor Townsend would be good. <laughs> Chancellor just sounds so... Chancellor sounds really good. Yeah. Um, we uh we we we've got to do what we can on Sim Sim City. Sim City's the the tool I'm using. The tool. Um the game. I don't like to think of it as a game. Okay. I understand simulation is a yeah. good way, yeah. But uh, this is the theme, my new theme from my my town. That's great. Soon to be Townton. Townton Abbey. Townton Abbey. Cuz that is like a little fiefdom, right? They they live in a little Yeah. Well, they're, as they explained in the show, they're actually doing a public service by keeping yeah. the, uh, the the heritage of this uh, system where you have yeah. nobles and you have you employ all these people to yeah. serve you, and they they find joy that's what in, I'm doing. in serving you yeah. and your family who uh-huh. sits around in drawing rooms and discusses the news of the day and has breakfast. Yeah. Just don't for, yeah, don't forget that they're real people too. No, no, no way. I mean, I already know that. That's and I tax them. And when the sewage starts backing up, mm. uh, just a little rule, and I look for people you can kick out of the city. Well, yeah. Because you got to get your numbers down. I grew yeah. my numbers too fast, and then I outgrew my sewage system, which who hasn't had that problem? So I'm guessing you named them Jeeves and Winifred. No, but that's that's a great idea. Did you um, replace those uh, people you kicked out with, like the, with the area they were living? Did you call like eminent domain and build a yeah. park? No, no, we didn't. Parks are expensive. Oh, okay. So I only have two of them. What well, I they am, cut down on pollution. Well, yeah. But you know what? Right now, I'm going for the smog um, award. Oh, okay. Because a lot of people, smog's, uh, you know, the, the coal mine, the, the gas, or what is it, the coal burning, um, uh, what do they call them? Coal burning, like... Um, power plants. Power plants are, they're, they're less expensive than all of the other... 
safer, cleaner right. methods of energy creation. Yeah. So I'm I'm trying to I'm at first I'm just going to kind of I'm I'm it's almost more like it's not Downton Abbey. It's more like Townton Abbey. Yeah. It's more maybe it's in China. Okay. Where they're just adding more coal plants. Nice. Or it's night- like that right yeah. now. But China's economy was booming. Yeah. <laughs> so I was kind of using their Did you their at least model. put your your uh, coal-fired power plants outside the city? Yeah, I did. Okay. Because sometimes it, you make the mistake of getting no. ahead of yourself. You put them in the city yeah, and then exactly. there are people are trying to live next to right? them. And, uh. No. And, and I realized people complain about that. So I moved it to the outskirts. Sadly, I moved it by the beach. It's by the beach. So I'll have to move those later when I get a really strong, you know, when I get a lot of strong tourism coming in to go to the beach. I'll move my power plants then. Do you think people will mistake Downton Abbey for the building that was used on the show Downton Abbey? No. And they'll not be disappointed? No, they will love this. Okay. Yeah, I think you can even look my town up if, if you really want to and come buy some stuff from my people. Key phrase. For my peasants. If you really want to. (sighs) Folks, life is good. And up next, we're going to be talking Steven Spielberg. Boy, oh boy, has he had a history uh, in uh, directing movies. We'll be talking with an author who wrote a book about him. That's a big deal. He's done everything. And Jeff's salivating because Jeff's so into the movies. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Helping you be the good in the world. From the Jaws theme to Indiana's whip, the creature and the creature known as E.T., Steven Spielberg has been entertaining the masses for decades. In her book, Steven Spielberg, A Life in Films, Molly Haskell looks at Hollywood's most renowned director and unpacks the director's life and works. Uh, Molly Haskell, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, thanks. Thanks. I enjoy being here. This is a a fun interview for me just because I feel like I've, I've been on this... Um, roller coaster ride with Steven Spielberg as as these movies have been coming out. His name is attached to so many of them. Um, first and foremost, I guess we need to know, Molly, what is your favorite Steven Spielberg movie? Well, I, well first of all, I think that's true. I think so many people have just grown with them, and, and you know their whole childhood has sort of been formed around those movies. My favorites are not some of those wonderful childhood movies that everybody loves, but some of the later ones. Um, they're a little bit bleaker, which is kind of interesting because you wouldn't have expected it from the earlier ones. But I like Empire of the Sun, mm. which is about a boy caught up in the war in Shanghai. And it's a very, it's like, again, focused on a child. He's wonderful with children and child actors. But this one is quite different from the earlier ones. It's much, it's much bleaker because the, he, he almost becomes feral and amoral during the course of the war. I like Minority Report. I don't usually like science fiction, uh, yeah, but I, I love like Minority, Minority Report yep. a lot. Also rather bleak, based on a Philip K. Dick story. Um, I like Schindler's List. I like Lincoln. You know, I think that a lot of the later ones, are. I, I, it's hard to decide among them. I like AI, too. I think that is a science fiction film in which a mother can't love a robot child who's very lifelike, and it's, it's just incredibly poignant and also very... So often with Spielberg, there's something uncanny about anticipating. He's sort of at, sort of in in the zeitgeist, but also anticipating the future with, uh, with you know, artificial intelligence and so forth. What what got you 
into wanting to write a book on Steven Spielberg? I mean, it, well, the, the actual <laughs> fact is that they—it's part of a series. It's Yale University Press's Jewish Lives series, so it's very odd. They came to me all day. They came to my agent and discussed it with him, and they came to me because I'm not Jewish, and most of the writers, uh, the subjects, of course, are all Jewish, mostly did. I hadn't even thought about how that was going to play out because <laughs> I suddenly had this live subject who's very much of a control freak, so I had to be very careful. Oh, interesting, but, yeah. Yeah, lawyers were all over it. but um, so, And I also hadn't been a fan of Spielberg, but then I thought, well, you know, this is this is challenging. Let me look at my own prejudices, and also I can bring a critical. There's nothing wrong with bringing a critical eye. It might be more interesting. He's got plenty of fanboys writing right, about him right. everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. So. Well, that's interesting. So, so, so you you really uh, you had to walk the fine line of of his lawyers and the institution of Spielberg. Exactly. Wow. I mean, I, I sort of tried not to think about it. I really didn't think. I hadn't even thought about the lawyer aspect till it was all over. And the other. That's why it was really hard. It was hard because, you know, I had written this book on Gone with the Wind, also part of a series, and the critics all loved it. And it's because partly because nobody wanted to write about Gone with the Wind. So <laughs> then here I was doing Spielberg, and they know him backwards and forwards. They know every shot in his films, and they all were going to think, well, that, why didn't I get to do this book? You know? Yeah, yeah. And you could sort of read between the lines of a lot of, I mean, their reviews were good, but there was a kind of, huh, well, I want to, you know, they were all doing their Spielberg essays, but that's okay. But of course, I did have to be careful, and I did have, to, I wanted to write something that would not just be for film buffs, that would be kind of entertaining for, a, I mean, I don't expect, you know, wide, widespread. They have to have certain interest in film, but not just geeks. And so I don't know the degree to which I did that, but that was what I was aiming for. But I also had to be be careful that I was correct on all the film stuff. So. Did you um, did you get to speak with uh, with Steven Spielberg? Did you get to I sit did, down with him? I did make the effort, and I, frankly, I was quite relieved when he wouldn't. I mean, I was a little hurt at first, but yeah. then I was relieved because I really wanted to be free. I knew that um, it, it turns out that he has, has this policy of not speaking to biographers, and this was true. There's a wonderful sort of full-dress biography by Joseph McBride, which I used and, and, and plundered from my book, but yeah. he wouldn't talk to, Spielberg wouldn't talk to him either. But McBride got to everybody else, to the schoolmates and the teachers and the father and the relatives. Uh, the only one he couldn't talk to was the mother, because apparently Spielberg told his mother she couldn't talk to him. <laughs> he was afraid of what she would say. Yeah. Talk so about... And I was afraid. If I did meet him, I would be co-opted to his point of view. Mm-hmm. I think I just I just wouldn't be able to help it. And I, I did want the freedom to, you know, to be a little more detached. What did you just, I guess, talk about the person for a bit. What, what is it that we don't know about Steven Spielberg that might help us understand a little bit? Uh, well, you know, I, I think I sort of figured it out now that I've written the book. It's a, sometimes you, you don't you sort of understand what something is as you're writing on it, even after you've finished it. But it just sort of hit me that he really became a filmmaker before he became a person. And this is why he's so fixated on childhood, because he started... He, he was a lonely, and this gets in, I think, to, to some of the other issues, like his, the Jewishness, which he was completely confused about because he had been born into a kind of Jewish enclave in Cincinnati, but immediately, I mean, almost immediately, his father got a job at GE. His father was in electronics, and it was in the early computer days. And they moved to New Jersey to a, 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 a Gentile neighborhood, and it was mostly Gentiles, and the parents were sort of assimilationist anyway, but the grandparents were orthodox, and 
he was just totally confused about it. He felt so much of an outsider in this neighborhood, and he was acting out all the time and doing these malicious pranks on his sisters and just didn't understand what the Jewishness was all about. But when he got to, then they moved to Arizona, which was even more sort of white bread. Mm. And he felt even more of an outsider, and he was entering adolescence at that point. And then he he got, joined the Boy Scouts, and that was really the turning point. And when they had to go for their badges, he thought, what am I going to do? Because he wasn't really, I mean, he, he liked the outdoors, but he wasn't a jock, he wasn't this. And his father said, why don't you go for the photography badge and make a film? And that's what he did. And he made this little film, and the Boy Scouts loved it. And they and then he would tell stories. He was a good storyteller, and they would laugh and cry. And he thought this, it was a sort of sense of arrival. That's where, And he always has sort of arrivals in all of his films and I think it was from that moment on that he had found his his way of being in the world which was making films and telling stories and also felt a sense of belonging that he had never felt in the in the synagogue or you know, even in his family he was felt like a, a little bit of an outsider because the three sisters and the mother and the father was at work all the time so I think he just glommed onto that and he never he he was saving money to make films instead of going out on dates, so he really didn't have that sort of normal progression of adolescence into girls. And he was just very, it was sort of an arrested adolescence, as he himself has acknowledged, and he sort of came to it very late. So How fascinating. But, yeah, so that's really what it is. And so that's why um, he's, he has said several times that m- my whole story is in my films. His story is in the films, because he was making the films, and growing up through the films but not outside of the film he really didn't have a life outside the film so that was the way i was so thrilled that this to me became the the obvious way to tell the story was through the films hmm. does he do you sense um is there any i mean i guess every film is part of his growing up do you yeah. sense any film that is uh was you know so uniquely him um well, in his life. It's a strange thing is the least personal film is probably Schindler's List. And yet it's sort of momentous in other terms because it really was right. that and having a child was sort of what brought him back to Judaism and to an understanding of it and a desire to tell that story and to set up the Shoah Foundation for witnesses, testimony, all of that. So that was a watershed. But I think, well, I think E.T. is him because the, the boy who feels alone within the family and needs a pal um, I think the, the personal is say I think um, Close Encounters is very personal, and in fact, so much so that he almost disavowed the Richard Dreyfuss character who goes off into space and leaves his family behind. He said if he'd had a family at that time, he wouldn't have made that film. But that was him, sort of the artist in him, I think, or the discontent, malcontent, just uh, wanting to escape, the loner, the wanting to escape. So that's it. And the interesting thing is... <clears throat> His, it's what I think makes his science fiction films so appealing because they're not just formulaic escapist films. He brings the personal longings and insecurities into them. The family, I mean, not not that not the sort of romantic ones, but the ones in the family. And the, I think he sort of gets the Disney audience, but but with a more um, modern and sense of the fr- fractures in the family hmm. does he talk about his his family now um he I, I know i believe he's been married twice how many kids does right. he have what's well, what's his I family myself i think it's seven but he married amy irving and they had a child max and got divorced almost after he was born but they very 
you know, conscientious parents. And then he married Kate Capshaw, who converted to Judaism. And I think, I mean, she she always said that she sort of set her cap for him. She just responded to his films, and then she auditioned for him. And he was still involved with Amy Irving then, but later they did get together. And they had, she had some of her own. Uh, he had Max, and then they had some together, and then they adopted some. So I think it's seven wow. in all. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So family, and uh, and then he converted, uh, or he, I guess he converted, or well, he, he was he was already Jewish. In, yeah. But, he, oh, well, his, the interesting was his mother, I and mean, this was one of the big problems in his life. It wasn't just the anxiety about being Jewish, but the parents were fighting all the time. And as parents did in those days, they stayed together for the children. And it turned out, and he always thought, as you can see in the stories, like in E.T., that the father had a ba- had had played around, and that was what was was breaking the marriage up. Uh-huh. But in fact, it turned out it was the mother who was going out with the best friend of the father, and that's who she. When they finally divorced, she married him, and he was Orthodox Jew, so she went back to becoming Orthodox, and so oh, wow. you know they were back. <laughs> Oh, the but I mean, how complicated for a boy. But then I guess that does getting through that in life it is. helps well, you explain you a, it. No, the normal anxieties of adolescence just compounded by this by the parents and the and also the parents. He was part of that, you know, this baby boom thing that I was sort of part of too, where we were just questioning the parents' hypocrisy and they were pretending that everything was okay. They pretended that they were religious when they really weren't. You know that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, so that was going on, too. How fascinating. No, apparently, I guess his mom just passed away. She did, yeah, but she was quite something. She was a concert pianist and very artistic, and actually, she was his co-conspirator. They, she used to write letters so he could get out of play hooky from school, and they would go <laughs> scout for locations. Really? How fun, though. I mean, it, it's just yeah. interesting to know the story behind the man. Let's do this, Molly. Let's take a break, come back, and I'd love you to get into... Um, just kind of, in, in a way, Spielberg owns Hollywood. It seems like he he can pretty much make any movie he wants. Has that pass uh, has that pass helped him or hurt him to be able to have such freedom, such latitude? We'll uh, continue this discussion on Steven Spielberg and the and the book Steven Spielberg: A Life in Films by Molly Molly Haskell. Stick with us. We'll be back. it is oh some of the greatest moments of my childhood hiding under blankets waiting for jaws we uh, every summer we'll uh, try to watch the show with my kids while on vacation just try to scare them before we get to the pool then i can really take it on joining us is molly haskell she is um, the author of the book steven spielberg a life in films Molly is a film critic and author of five previous books, including From Reverence to Rape, The Treatment of Women in the Movies, Love and Other Infectious Diseases, and Frankly, My Dear, Gone with the Wind. Uh, she, um, she's a great uh, author and uh, is helping us understand a little bit today more about Steven Spielberg. Thank you again, Molly, for being with us. 
Hi, thank you for having me. And I think you can be uh, brought up on charges of child abuse if you do that to your children. <laughs> I know, I know. Now they're all old enough, but no one will go in the water anymore. Oh, they're probably in, in heavy-duty analysis the, now. For that's right. Yeah, we've been sending them to therapy for a long time now. This is a uh, – This is a. I, I think um, when I was just looking through all of his credits, we, we – we, he's been involved in so many films as executive producer or producer, but really just his list as a director are unbelievable. Do you think um, he's had kind of a pass, I mean, in Hollywood, because he can, seems like he's going to have the first choice of every movie? Well, he has, and I think he's used it quite well. I mean, there are some that are, that are retreads. Obviously, he's done Jurassic Park a few too many times, and maybe Indiana Jones. He just can't stop doing it. I think he just can't resist it when, if Harrison Ford still wants to do it, to sort of see the... You know the geezer, the sort of geezer action movies. Yeah. But I think he's also done, you know, movies that haven't fared that well, like Amistad about the Black Slave Revolt, um, even Saving Private Ryan. He didn't think that he had the money, he had the leverage to do these movies and Schindler's List. He didn't think they would do anything. He really, I think, he honestly did not believe they had any commercial prospects, and they did. But I mean, he he has felt that he should should use that leverage wisely, and especially with children. I think once you have children, you sort of have that sense of responsibility, and so he's made very sort of even edu- sometimes a little too educational, I think the films are. But um, Lincoln, all of these, I don't think he expected much to happen, and yet they all... He just has a, a magic touch, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, he everything does. Everything just seems to turn to gold. Is he the, political? The so-called losers, and even I mean, the weakest of all, 1941, that ghastly comedy, huh. war, war, war comedy. I think w- went on to do pretty well in Europe because everybody loved it as being anti-American. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you sense he's um, he's political, and is he is he? Is he well received that way? I mean, a lot of these these movies are about statements. Well, they are, and it's interesting. Um, one of the most interesting is Minority Report, because that's that was started before the whole idea and the, uh, thinking about it was before nine eleven. And then, as they were making it, nine eleven happened, and in the movie is all this anxiety about surveillance. And of course, right after nine eleven, John Ashcroft formed the Homeland Security Heavy, you know, Patriot Act under Bush and expanded surveillance and he was against that but at the same time he didn't want to appear unpatriotic it's such a crucial hour so I think when the movie came out he said he didn't mean anything unpatriotic about it but it's amazing how how he just sort of understood the mood of the time yeah. there at so, at so many other times. Boy, he does have his finger on the pulse, mm. doesn't he? Um how do you how because a lot of the a lot of the play um, in Hollywood recently has been about there's not enough good roles for women. There's not enough good roles for African-Americans. Uh, he seems to to handle it pretty well. How, how do you well, see I, it? I, the thing he, the, I think his weakness, and he knows that, and he'd be the first person to admit it, is with grown men and women. He just doesn't know how to do because he never developed. You know, he became a filmmaker before he could become a lover. Yeah. So he just hasn't, hasn't got a clue about men and women are even about probably complex women and their desires but he still has some some good women's and some girls roles in there i think actually one of the best is in in the color purple with the, the black mm. women in there are just wonderful and he he's treated blacks in those two films and and got beaten up for it you know it was it was a moment of when people would, a lot of people would say well what does he think he's doing you know the idea that you can't make a film about 
if a, a white person can't write about blacks or make films about blacks and write, you know, that whole thing, which I think we've we've suddenly we've managed to get beyond that in this in this new sort of burst of awareness and diversity that we're going through now. Um, I think he's very uh, uh, conscientious about. Uh, he's a, he's a liberal and he's he's given money and he was I think he was very important in swaying people in California to. I think he was for Hillary first back in 2008, but he got behind Obama. So yes, that's where his heart and his pocketbook are definitely with the Democrats. Um, and I I think this is sort of pretty clear. In yeah. His, movies yeah do do you um i mean for a guy that has pretty much seemingly done it all uh what's left for him to do do, do you have any insight into where he's going to go well, they just announced that they were going to do a new um pentagon papers oh wow movie yeah somebody just sent it to me yesterday oh, friday and Meryl Streep is going to play Kay, Catherine Graham. I'm, I'm sort of puzzled why they would want to do that over since the, the yeah. one with, with Redford and um, Hoffman is so good. Yeah, it went pretty well. Uh, but this will be a new angle, I guess. And Tom Hanks is going to be, I think he's going to be Benjamin Bradford, uh, Bradley, rather. And I don't know what else, how they're going to do it. I thought he was going to do one, this Lindsay Adario, uh, this war correspondent. He was supposed to do her story which would be a great woman's role with Reese Witherspoon. I'm not sure whether that's in the works or not, but I think he, he's very much aware everybody in Hollywood is about wanting to give women more roles. And he's worked with women all his life as producers, and Kathleen Kennedy was his producer and very close to him and very important to him. So it's not that he he's, – he's not misogynist. I just think he's not, he's not into uh, the kind of love and ambiguity of that that – those of us who like European films, or maybe some of the other, you know, Woody Allen or Robert Altman or some of those other directors, um, he's not into that, but he's got plenty. Um, he's obviously pretty well rounded yeah. in his approach and his talent. Does he does he burn out? Have you did you get any sense in his an history? Amazing thing, he just doesn't seem to. I mean, I think one of the times he came closest to it was after Jaws, because that just. It was a terrifying movie to make, and he was so young, and he was un, basically untried. I mean, he he had shown a tremendous talent, but here was this big budget, unbelievably complicated film. There he was up in Martha's Vineyard, and everything was going wrong, and he really had a meltdown when that was over, and everybody hated him. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But just that he could get through that, I mean, it shows you how much um, confidence he has deep down about his filmmaking. I, th- I don't think there's anyone who's more confident. Is he um, – I mean, that is amazing because – I think it's – oh, you, you're talking about how he keeps going. I think it, he's, he's talked about this anxiety and how it keeps him going because he's just – he's a nervous wreck, and he just has to be doing something, be doing – there's a kind of compulsion to it. And you'd think that some that it would sort of catch up with him, but somehow it doesn't seem to. Or if it does, he he tunes out and then he tunes back in again. But it just here he is, seventy years old now, and it's incredible. Yeah, it is seventy yeah. years old, and um, he you know he he he's who who do you sense are his movie influences? Who who well, are I think, you know, movie he or not? Always, he, he'll always deny that he's imitating because Wells is the great god for most kind of independent filmmakers right. and auteur. He's the great auteur. And he's probably the antithesis of Spielberg in his movie-making 
um, aesthetic, just the opposite. He's not. He's there, and and, it, and Spielberg has always said, "I'm not like Wells. I don't put my personal stamp on everything." But he was thinking about Wells very early on. In fact, he even changed the date of his birth, so he wanted to be the the youngest. He wanted to be to, yeah. to rival Wells as the youngest filmmaker. Well, he almost did that, and he certainly rival has gone way beyond him because he's managed to to stay in there. Well, Wells just came to uh, you know he couldn't he couldn't work in Hollywood anymore at a very young age he was he was sidelined yeah so Spielberg has known how to play it his play it the Hollywood way but also his own way the the two ways managed to coalesce and he's been been very lucky that way too how do you sense he'll be remembered and uh and what movies do you think will stand out as the that's know? a really good question and I, I well of course you mentioned Jaws. Everyone thinks of Jaws just because it's so sensational, and it has become a sort of primal memory. And you know, it's, yeah. I mean, when they when when the summer comes and and they have actual Jaws attacks, instead of showing the kids and uh, they show Jaws because it's so much more vivid than right. anything that happens in real life, and it's changed the way we look at the ocean. Nothing has had, had a more powerful impact on the psyche. Schindler's List, for another reason, I think it it brought the subject of the Holocaust treated it in a way that has paved the way for other movies to deal with it. And that's just a kind of amazing thing because so many people just felt it was, it was don't go there territory. Mm-hmm. Cause you just couldn't get it right and it would offend people and it wouldn't, you know, this and that. And he just went in there and did it. And I think that was an, an incredibly bold thing to do. Um, I think he's humanized science fiction. I mean, at the time when Jaws came out, many of us didn't like it because we were partisans of this new Hollywood that was the Vaultman and and Cassavetes and these really interesting European-style films that were being made, and suddenly it was blockbusters and blanketing the weekend, you know, um, multiplexes. It was just changing the nature of movies, and it was a very, it seemed like a very mechanical film, just, and and Spielberg himself said it was just a a mechanism for scaring people. (laughs) And now, though, with so many films that are so much noisier and louder and less human, it seems like a sort of humanistic masterpiece, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, it does, doesn't it? So, yeah. So everything changes with time, and his films that were that were that seemed uh, just, uh, too sentimental or too this or too that at the time maybe look better today. Also, he's such a filmmaker. He loves film, and he's... He he does things with film through his cinematographers that um, I think a lot of film lovers appreciate that you don't see in the kind of a lot of. I think he uses CGI warily. He uses it when he when he when he wants to. He knows how to use it, but he wants real film as well. Mm. So I think that's just a, a big plus. That's powerful. We got yeah. about a minute left, Molly. What what's the what's the one thing you haven't told us that that we should all know about a Steven Spielberg? Oh dear! Um, gosh, I think I've just covered it all. Except <laughs> that, um, well, I, I think he, that he's just a mensch. I think he he can be very difficult. Let's don't whitewash it. He can be very difficult to people on the set and in contracts and all that. But you don't get to where he is by being a pushover. And I think he's done things with his power that are that are just wholly admirable. And I think he's left just um, uh, just a stunning array of successes behind him. That's powerful. No, we appreciate it, Molly. Thanks for your insight. I mean, even just your mention of him being an Eagle Scout um, and a Boy Scout and then an Eagle Scout, even our own Jeff Simpson was influenced by that as well. I mean, when Jeff got his Eagle Scout, Steven, you send it to Stephen's office and his office would 
talk about it or send them a notice or something. Powerful stuff. Um, Molly Haskell's her name. Go uh, check out her book, Steven Spielberg, A Life in Film. And uh, mollyhaskell.com is the website. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, McKenna Bowes will be in the house talking to us about uh, the day that artificial intelligence can have us communicating from the other side of the grave. Stick with us. Give it up now for the House of Bows. Welcome to her house. She is looking about. She is here to break down things you didn't know now. McKenna Bows in the house. She's our uh, incredible producer, social media expert, and she's here to be our mind bender. Glad to be here. You got a really cool uh, topic today. Apparently, so artificial intelligence, um, the ability for computers to eventually start thinking like us. Mm-hmm. And apparently there's an idea out there that the, the AI is going to eventually learn who we are, learn how we communicate. Oh, this isn't an eventuality. This is this is a reality. It is here. Boy, scary. We are scary. in the day and age of robots that can talk like us. And and so so really, you can you could die. Let's say in twenty years you die, but you leave this huge library of you, mm-hmm. your thoughts, your journals, your social media platform, all of these things, and then you're. This AI could then, in the future, send text messages, tweets to your kids, to your grandkids, thinking like you. Totally. And it's something that, you know, they've created for people who have died already. Um, oh, what they do, scary. yeah, they load in all of your text messages. Uh, you can do emails. You can do all of your social media posts. And from that, the algorithm, the bot, is able to sort of figure out the way that you speak oh, and wow. your feelings on yeah. different issues. And then people can text, you know, this phone number and have a full conversation with you. And it responds the way you do. If you tend to do long paragraph responses, you're going to get long paragraph responses. If you tend to do short, quick bursts, you're going to get that with those kind of attitudes that you would have. And it really does capture that whole picture of you. Good and bad. Well, I'm just thinking because I do a radio show and then I do TV appearances. I have a lot of content on how I think and speak. Mm Mm-hmm. But that not might not be good because I comment on a lot of stuff that most people wouldn't talk about. Yeah, and so that's one of those things that um, comes up in in this article is the fact that you have this idea where it really does capture everything that you say. Mm. And so that does make it in a lot of ways very true to life, yeah. which can be really comforting for the people you know who you've left behind because they can feel like they can connect with you still. But at the same time, you know, if you tend to be a little snippy sometimes or can be really guarded in some yeah. ways, that's going to come across as well. And so yeah. you don't have full control yeah, over you'd end up what attitude your it gives kids out. In the future. <laughs> exactly. I don't know if I like that because it all, I'm not sure that you get to mourn how do you let go of something that is always there? Well, and that's one of the things that, you know, you have to consider is, is there really a right or a wrong way to grieve? Right. Um, I think, you know, definitely there's some people that this might not be the best fit for because maybe they need to just simply move on. Yeah, they need to move on. 
But for other people, maybe it's, you know, something, you know, really beneficial in the sense that, you know, occasionally they can, you know, send a text and sort of have a very brief little conversation, Mm -hmm. have that outlet of grief. And maybe they need that, you know, just like little outlet, good to go for a long time, little outlet. It's like getting going to your astrologist. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like so in the future, you just say, I just wanted to ask dad what he thought about this. And you just go get a little take. And get that sort of that feel and just being able to hear a response in that (laughs) person's words. And maybe it's really good in just the sense that it gets you thinking the Mm -hmm. way that they would think. And you can then pull on your actual conversation. What if you end up arguing with this AI like, oh, dad, see, this is why I don't bring you this stuff. You know, it's definitely a possibility. And, you know, I think maybe at that point, I feel like, you know, when there are those loved ones of ours who are gone, I'd take an argument with them. Yeah. Over never hearing from them. Yeah, interesting. Wouldn't it be – but like something you could do on you know an anniversary or on a special day to remember dad, gather the kids, the grandkids around. I don't know why it's always dad. I mean moms can die too. Right? Yeah. I always think of it as dad. Well, and with that, there's other companies and other services that are similar to that in the sense that before you die, you create this digital will where you write messages, you write personal tweets, emails, things, and you say, I want it sent out on this day. And so that way, you know, it's your anniversary and all of a sudden your spouse gets a message from you that you crafted before you died. And you can sort of have that other form of digital immortality. It's another take that you have a little more control over, but they don't have the same engagement with. Well, and it gives you something... To do, like if you have a terminal illness, you now have something to do. Go lay down these tracks, go mm-hmm. do this writing, start gathering all of your stuff yeah. to, to feed the AI. Oh, jeez. I'm usually scared of AI, but this is yeah. one of those things where I think maybe there's something good about it. But like with Jeff, Jeff's always Jeff always misinterprets things I say on the radio, so his AI might misinterpret a lot. You know, but that that will remind us of the you know things that we love about Jeff. Yeah, or not. I mean, <laughs> might frustrate some people. What about he was a great husband? Huh? Won't we remember that about me? Well, I won't. I'm not married to you. Your wife will. I'm sure your wife will. I mean, I hope. So I'm interpreting this as I'm not really all that appreciated. No, you're, you're, I, would re- I would appreciate you and remember you as an incredible board operator, co-host, talent extraordinaire, friend of Shik Shumway. <laughs> That's how I'd remember you. Oh, don't cry. Don't cry. He's so emotional. Hang in there. He's jealous because I've been spending a lot of time with my city, my Townton Abbey, and he's getting less attention now. Anyway, we'll come back. McKenna, thanks. Glad to be here. Bending our minds. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on this side. Top of the morning to you. Hey, it's Tuesday, which means uh, you're one day in, four days away, And more importantly, it's the day we get to talk a little bit of Trump and Congress. Just a little bit. Isn't that every day? Well, I've been trying to avoid it recently. 
I've been taking a Trump break. And today, uh, we're going to be talking about executive powers. Everybody thinks, you know, we need to rein in the executive, except the executive. And now, Trump was saying uh, Obama was taking too much executive power, making too many regulations. Now the question is, will he pass legislation to to limit the ability of the executive to make more regulations? Right. I'm going to bet not. Why would you? I mean, as a guy now that runs his own city, I wouldn't. This is the... <laughs> This is the same argument as is Congress going to, you know, take away their powers? Are they going to, you know, cut their pay? You know, they're always like, oh, they get paid too much. We need to cut that back. Yeah, cut your pay. There's no way. They always give themselves a raise. Or pass some legislation that minimizes your terms, you know. So so you've got only two terms or three terms you can – no one's going to minimize their power. The more terms you have, the more power you gather. The more life you can suck out of people. Right. (laughs) I mean that in the best way possible. No. No, it's about doing what's best for your constituents. That's what we hear locally. Yeah. When people say they're not going to run and then run again and again right. and again and again. Running is probably the last thing in this world that I would want to do. And then they become basically oh. a, a living corpse in office. And there's – oh, wait. Sorry. Go ahead. Wow. I think we've <laughs> struck a nerve. Somebody somebody is frustrated with the the recent – uh, announcement that someone may be running as the oldest senator in. I think the whole concept that he's like fourth in line to the presidency really has him stoked. Oh yeah, he enjoys a Secret Service protection, and he's like, "This is pretty good. I like this." He's four heartbeats away. <laughs> hey, fourth best ain't bad. It ain't bad at all. I mean, you know, unless it's like a four man race. Yeah, but he's. I mean, we're talking about Orrin Hatch. Yeah, I have one of the greatest stories ever about Orrin Hatch. When I was a 16-year-old boy... I was you're going to tell us now? Well, yeah. Okay, was, Okay. go ahead. Sorry. Sorry did to you, interrupt. Did you not want to hear it now? No, go ahead. I was going to tell it later, but it won't... No, it's, it's not. It, it doesn't matter It's later. your show. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Darn right. It's my show. So, yeah, term limits. Why would you do that? Why would the president... So, Orrin Hatch power? was... Uh, I was at... That's right. I was 16 years old with my wife now, girlfriend at the time. We were at a dinner, uh, having dinner at the Mandarin, which is a Chinese place in Bountiful, Utah. Right. I'm sitting there, look across the room, and I recognize this guy, this really powerful guy. And I tur- I don't know his name because I was 16. Hmm. Turned to my uh, adult friend that was there and said, who's that dude over there? And he's like, that's Orrin Hatch. And I'm like, he's he's like he's a senator. He's a U.S. senator. He's that carpetbagger from Pittsburgh. Sorry, and, go ahead. And I thought, what a cool guy. <laughs> and he caught my eye, and across a crowded waiting room, west, uh, restaurant waiting room. Did he give you a wink. He walked oh. over through the crowd. Oh wow! And shook my hand, and said, "What's your name?" I mean, he, he by the way, he's a senator. Hmm. He's going to dinner. And he went through the entire group, came over to 16-year-old me that couldn't vote, asked me my name, and then talked to me for like five minutes. Hmm. And so from then on, he got my vote. Two questions. 18 terms later, he still has my vote. Was it an election year, and was there a camera present? No cameras okay, were wow, present. Okay, wow, genuine opportunity Don't there. remember if it was an election year, but I'm a 16-year-old kid. Yeah. When he I was been. 16, wow. I ate some Chinese. I ate some Chinese in a restaurant with Orrin Hatch. 
That's great. My vote he did not snatch hmm. until I was 18. Okay, you done? Done with that. You're going to do that song now. <laughs> I thought it was fitting. Hey, it was very fitting. Go figure. <laughs> that was off the top of his head. That was amazing. That was, see, <laughs> this is why we've got this show. We never know what's going to happen. For now. me to sing? Oh, okay. I see. Anyway, so we'll be talking uh, about Congress trying to rein in presidential power. Will Trump sign off on it? He's got to sign off on it if if it's going to go through, right? So we'll get to all that fun. Plus, um, just more, you know, empty news. Matt Townsend news. Maybe another Orrin Hatch story if we're lucky. Could be. You never know. Someday I could talk about – well, I won't go there. Anyway, lots of, uh, lots of people we've met. Uh, Let's now get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Authorities across the U.S. Northeast caution residents Tuesday to stay off the roads. Thousands of school districts have been canceled, and or the classes have been canceled in those districts in the region. As raging winter storm has been uh, battering Philadelphia, New York, Boston, and elsewhere. Saw a live stream of uh, Times Square. It doesn't look that bad. It ain't bad. You guys might just need to go to work today. It's really not that bad. <laughs> Except they, they don't know they don't move snow very well back east. It's New York. They just slap a plow on the on the garbage trucks and start plowing. I know, That's but how it works. three inches will just destroy the town. Governor Andrew Cuomo declared a state of emergency for each of New York's sixty-two counties, and he demanded that all non-essential state employees stay home rather than commute to work. More than five thousand flights have so far been canceled, including more than. 2,800 in New York City area alone. The storm, according to the National Weather Service, will drop between 12 and 18 inches of snow across the region. Wow. New Jersey, the New Jersey shore is at risk of strong winds between 50 and 55 miles per hour and storm surge, which is always fun. Oh, that means Pookie. What's that girl's name? Snooky. 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 <laughs> what's her name? Snooky? She probably lives in Florida now. Oh, okay. That's where you go. When you're done with New Jersey, you go yeah, to Florida. that's right. The Congressional Budget Office numbers on the Republican health plan were released Monday, and the numbers were worse than a predicted coverage. 24 million fewer than Obamacare in 10 years, 14 million additionally uninsured in 2018, 21 in 2020, and 24 in 2006. Premiums 15 to 20% higher in 2018. And uh, 10% lower in 10 years, President Trump talked about his proposed health plan. And you'll see rates go down, 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 and you'll see plans go up, up, up. You have a lot of choices. You'll have plans that nobody's even thinking of today. Wonderful plans. You'll have plans you didn't even know you had to have. (laughs) We've got plans in arrears. (laughs) That's after he talked about how everyone loves Obamacare now that Obama's gone. I mean, that's why people love Obama. They didn't love him when he was in office. Right. Now they love him so much because he's gone, and that's what's going to happen. You're going to love Obamacare when it's gone <laughs> or something. It's Republicans insist they're not trying to compete with Obamacare, which required people to buy coverage. Instead, they're giving Americans a choice, and some will choose not to have health care. An independent White House analysis of the American Health Care Act, so this is the White House analysis, not the Congressional Budget Office, says the proposed over- overhaul will cause 26 million people to become uninsured, according to documents obtained by Politico. Mm. White House disputes all numbers. Sure, sure. The Department of Justice has requested an extension to produce evidence in support of President Donald Trump's claim that the Obama administration ordered wiretaps against him. Lawmakers in the House Intelligence Committee had previously asked for the department to submit evidence in support of Trump's claim by Monday. They needed yeah, extra well, time. Y- yeah, 
it was all just a little misunderstanding. So we'll see what happens. They're going to see if they can produce some uh, documents here soon. And finally, hundreds of aggressive and potentially radioactive wild boar have prompted public safety concerns in Japan, according to news reports. Oh, boy. As homeowners prepare to return to towns near Fukushima, where a 2011 earthquake and tsunami triggered a meltdown at a nuclear power plant in the region. When the area was evacuated, wild boars moved in the surrounding hills and from the hills and forests. The animals, which can be aggressive towards humans, now freely roam the deserted towns, according to Reuters. It is not, what it, it is not really clear... Which is the master of the town, people or wild boars, says one of the mayors of these. Oh, that's small scary. Towns. Wild boar taking over. And that reminds possibly me, radioactive. That reminds me of the uh, that movie this year. What was it called? The Swining. The Swining. That it, was scary. It's kind of a mix of The Shining and the nuclear radioactive boar attack. Now, if you saw the first really horrible, incredible Hulk movie... <clears throat> They had radioactive poodles. This is the one in the early 2000s yes. with Eric Bana. Huh? Yeah. Okay. Is that Steve, who it was? Steve Bannon? Move on. They, they, had a, they had two dogs that were being experimented on and turned into like a radioactive poodle the size of a car. Oh, that's bad. And so Hulk's wrestling these dogs. Here, boy. Just looking at, what Here are, boy. It was the reason, really, there's so many reasons why that movie was horrible. Sounds but, like a Ninja Turtles movie. is what. It, yeah, it does. But... <laughs> <laughs> That's what I see here. You see boar the size of cars coming after Boar people. Boars are bad anyway. They're just bad. But you get them all nuked up. <laughs> I know. Then you're really in for How do you stop a nuclear or a radioactive boar? From a distance. Probably just with a gun. Yeah. When I used to play Deer Hunter 2017, I used to take out a lot of boar. Never took out a nuclear or radioactive bore, ever. Could we move on? This news is really starting to bore me. Yeah. Boy. Mm-hmm. Boy, the crowd's Sorry, I couldn't today. resist. I'm, a little I am, hostile today. I am kind of a, a ham. A little hostile. So the uh, OMB says mm. that they, they, they gave the numbers on the health care um, revamp. Yes. But here, here's what they're going to say on the Republican side. We've got a lot more to add to this. So well, They said it's first of a three-part plan. Yeah, and, and every – they'll just keep adding the next plan. And when you add the next plan, it will fix a lot of these numbers. Right. Well, they say the other end of it is, again, there's no mandate compelling people to buy yeah. insurance so people have a choice. So, yes, more people will be uninsured because human will, they'll right. just decide not to buy it. Right. But then what will happen, they're saying, is then more companies will get involved, more competition will be created across state lines. And when that happens, then everyone's going to want to be a part of this because – there's going to be competition. Prices will be lower. The OMB did say that the prices will go down in 2020, 2026. Yeah. So that's a hopeful thing. It's just 24 well, fewer million people and they've all, using they, it. They've and, also, by, and they're all the poorer people that need it desperately. And some of that is they won't qualify. Now, in it, they talk about a $337 billion deficit cut. Yeah. Right. But most of that deficit cut is because they're cutting Medicaid. <laughs> right. <laughs> which will keep people from being able to qualify for insurance. It's going to save is, it's going to save a third of a, a 300 trillion or 300 million dollars, a third of a trillion dollars. Are yeah. you kidding me? And that's just the first pass. Yeah. We got two more they're saying. Two more coming. So they're they're You'll cl- be amazed. They're claiming this budget savings, but that beca- that's because we're not we're cutting 
coverage so or Medicaid coverage so people won't be able to qualify for the right. health care, which is some of the savings, and it's all muddled together. And, and you, the big point is Obama's Obamacare was going down anyway. That's what they keep saying. So if it if it went down and tanked anyway, those twenty four million would have been out of their insurance anyway. So really, we're breaking even. It's kind of the sound of it is. And uh, Trump in a press conference yesterday said he goes, "I told the the leadership just let it go, let it go, just let it fall apart because then at that point then the blame's on everybody else and then we can try to fix it." But they goes, "That's irresponsible." To the American people. That's right. I'm glad that the president. Perfect healthcare has, is gone. The fact the president suggests this to the leadership, and then later goes, but that's not a good idea. That's not Don't a good idea. Um, have you noticed that Jeffrey's been breaking into song a lot more lately? Yeah, it's. Uh, I wasn't going to bring it up. I just kind of let things happen and see if they run their course. Maybe dissipate ever, on their own. You know what? I, I think it's ever since he went to that um, the Osmond revival. The, yeah. the 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 great Osmond revival in uh, at the Sarah Theater in downtown Provo. Mm. Ever since that went down, he's he's just he's much more chipper. He's wearing purple socks. I don't know why. Apparently, See, Donnie. And I believe that that does affect a person. I had the Osmonds forced upon me also. In hold a on, situation hold on, hold where on. I was unable to get out of it. And, forced uh, upon you. Yeah, they're the Osmonds for heaven's sakes. They were. It was kind of a sneak attack. No one really said what the program was. We were just required to go, and you walk in, and all of a sudden, it's like here's here's some obscure Osmonds, and then all of a sudden, it's Donnie, and I'm like, oh no, the whole family's oh, that's here. Great. And then it turned into this cavalcade of Osmonds. And I love Donnie and Murray. I thought they were certified national and international treasures. They are. They are. In fact, I was in England in certain counties in Utah. Yes. When they when I was in England and they said where are you from and I said Utah and they're like, oh, have you met the Osmonds? They said that. So and I'm like no, but I have a friend that just went to their revival. Mm. And then I thought of you, Jeff. Is there like a tent in a parking lot? Is that how they do the revival? No, because I think were there you snakes probably saw them involved? in Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> there's snakes. <laughs> yeah, there's a, he he went to he went to Vegas there. The headlining there, it's amazing. That's not a revival. That's a that's a Survival. Vegas show at a casino. Well, but they're revived. Revival will be the the guy that shows up twice a year at the parking lot near my house. They also sell Christmas trees at. Now <laughs> that's a, tent. a revival. That's a revival. <laughs> um, is that why you're breaking into song, Jeff? I don't know why my life has perpetual is perpetually becoming a musical. Mm. There are some illnesses that. For whatever reason, you break into song thinking that you're actually communicating. Instead, you're singing. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. There might be some sort of nerve you know, there's a lot of, damage yeah, happening. Uh-huh. Well, I've got a friend that's a neuroradiologist if you want me to get you a scan. Yeah. Speaking of radioactive boar, we could have radioactive Jeff. Let's do it. So, by the way, my <laughs> wife's – I uh, her idea of a perfect afterlife is – for people to just break out in song, and everybody will know the words to the songs. Really? And it'll all be choreographed. Well, but won't it be less like La La Land and more like Mormon Tabernacle Choir songs? Whew. I mean, it seems like to me when in the afterlife you're going to be, you know, singing with angels in heaven, you know. Well. Choirs of angels singing. It doesn't all have to be so formal. I mean, you think you you're saying 
you think there will be like a show tunes area in heaven. Oh, sure. Show tunes area, there's going to be like a megaplex. If I'm sounding sacrilegious, yeah. I apologize. You think there will be like a, 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 a rock area? I just hope that I'll be able to sit down and say, play Jeff wins the Landley Enloe Award in sixth grade. Siri or whatever it, the, yeah. the heavenly Siri will Alexa. be. Alexa. Yeah. Okay. That's an interesting view of heaven. We'll see how close you are when we get there. And if we get there. <laughs> I've never thought of it that way. Hmm. We got a lot to cover, folks. In a bit, we're going to come back and talk um, presidential power. Congress would love to rein it in. Presidents for years have been trying to, you know, extend it out, increase their power. What will Donald Trump do? He's the one that took on uh, President Obama's abuse of power or alleged abuse of power. Now what happens when you're sitting in that seat? Stick with us, folks. Talking politics up next. Throughout every presidential administration, the executive powers of the president and his and uh, his branch have steadily grown stronger. Bills like Reins Act and the Midnight Rules Relief Act would provide Congress with powers currently uh, held by the executive branch, but it would also make them more accountable to the American people. Would President Trump relinquish so much power to the legislative branch? Can he see through their facade? Are they just trying to trick him? Are they saying that this is a way to, uh, you know, slap the Obama administration for some of their overreaches? But really what they're going to do is end up curbing his power. Here to speak more about this is uh, Andrew uh, Rudolevich, Andrew Rudolevich, a professor of government at Bodoin College and uh, an expert on the subject. Andrew, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is, um, it seems like a complaint we hear with every battle between Congress and every president of the last, it seems, I don't know, 30, 40 years. Has this battle between the branches, the executive and Congress, have they been, have they been going at this forever to, to, for, you know, who's in control, who has the right to regulate? Well, that's built into the Constitution, right? Uh, the separation of powers and the way that our Constitution asks the branches to check and balance each other means that they're going to be in conflict a fair bit, even when they are uh, controlled by the same political party. But, yeah, the rise of regulations is an interesting twist on this because, of course, you know, back in the uh, 18th and 19th century, there really wasn't a lot of government to regulate. We weren't right. asking uh, the federal government to uh, deal with many issues, you know, that we ask it to do now. So, you know, it's, of course, in the uh, late 19th century with the growth, of, the growth of an industrial economy and then with the New Deal and World War II and sort of the institutionalization of the Cold War. You know, it's at that point that uh, the executive branch grows dramatically, and so the executive power grows with it. So there's, there's some um, legislation Congress is trying to pass. Uh, maybe, maybe review some of these bills and, and what they would do to limit the powers of the president. Sure. Well, there's a couple of approaches uh, that people have taken to trying to, uh, you know, uh, 
lessen the impact of regulation or at least make it more thoughtful. Uh, one of these was presidentially driven, right? And back in the uh, 1970s, as uh, environmental and consumer regulation was uh, really skyrocketing, you know, there were efforts by Presidents uh, Nixon and Ford and Carter uh, to try to uh, see what the impact of those regulations would be on the economy. Uh, then President Reagan in 1981 issued an executive order just flat out uh, stating that any regulation that was issued had had to have more benefits than costs and provided a centralized uh, means within the White House, basically, in the Office of Management and Budget to try to review that. That has been continued by every president since, and it looks like President Trump's going to try to expand that somewhat. Uh, on the congressional side, though, we've seen a couple things. One thing that was passed in 1996 was called the Congressional Review Act, and it allowed Congress to effectively cancel any regulation that was passed at the end of a presidential term. Hmm. Uh, that is to say, within 60 days of when uh, the uh, Congress had uh, been in session at the end of that term. Now, since Congress doesn't, frankly, work that much, uh, <laughs> this year, uh, right. 60 days went back to June. So uh, Congress currently and uh, has been working to identify regulations it doesn't like that were passed up through June, uh, sorry, after June. And those, uh, you know, have been brought to the floor. There's been a few that have already been uh, canceled out, uh, you know, most prominently, maybe uh, one having to do with uh, coal mines and the way that they uh, can dispose of some of their sludge. Um, so that was overturned. That's now uh, been canceled. But, you know, that does limit them. Even, you know, let's assume they work a little more often, you know, 60 days is going to pass a lot faster. Right. And, and you've got to get your act together. And that's hard for yeah. Congress to, to get that focus to get something done, isn't it? Sure. Well, it's hard, you know, it's hard partly because it has to pass through both House and Senate. It's hard because they have to agree on what they think the most egregious uh, regulations are. Um, and, you know, there are, you know, regulations, uh, I should say at the outset, you know, start for a reason, you know, because mm -hmm. there are uh, constituencies that feel that there are problems with the way in which, you know, an industry, for example, is conducting itself. So, you know, one of the rules that's been overturned uh, was trying to prevent oil companies from uh, giving payments to foreign governments in exchange for, uh, you know, concessions, yeah. you know, in the countries, yeah. and, you know, and people are, you know, critics of that would say, yeah, well, isn't that just a bribe? You know, we don't allow other companies to bribe foreign governments to, to let them work there. Uh, yeah, why start uh, why now? Why are we letting you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that, and there are, you know, arguments back and forth. But, you know, every, every piece of red tape starts uh, as at least uh, the intention is to make it a protection for some group or for the economy as a whole. So, you know, there's going to be arguments in Congress when they think about which regulations to overturn. You know, is this a protection? Is it a, an imposition? you know, on, on business or on, you know, the way consumers can access products or goods. Uh, so, yeah, that makes it even harder for Congress. And, of course, when you have a president in office who, you know, is in favor of those regulations, you know, the Congressional Review Act really can't work. Yeah, it doesn't. Because, you know, it only is working right now because there is a president who's sympathetic to this deregulatory agenda. But, of course, when um, you had a Republican Congress and a Democratic president, that was much harder to achieve. There, there, there were other... It's amazing how many different, um, I guess, approaches, proposals that are out there. Um, talk about the RAINS Act, because, by the way, what a funny name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> RAINS stands for Regulations from the Executive in Need of Scrutiny. 
I mean, that's a great acronym in acronym world, uh, in the acronym world. Um, And the Midnight Rules Relief, um, are, are these are these just other methods of trying to rein in the president? Yeah, well, you know, as you say, the acronyms get kind of tortured. They're, uh, you know, trying to come up with a catchy bill name sometimes right. requires some awful uh, constructions of the English language. Uh, yeah, so there are really two approaches that Congress has taken, maybe three. Um, one, which is what the RAINS Act does, is to require, instead of coming back and trying to cancel everything afterwards, it would require that Congress affirmatively vote to put in place any regulation in the first place, hmm. any major regulation, I should say. Uh, major regulation is usually something that has a, an impact of $100 million or more on the economy. Um, Sounds like is, a good idea. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a good idea and it's not. Uh, and let me yeah. see why. It's a good idea on the, if you believe that Congress will take it seriously. Oh, right? true. Congress is responsible for... You know, the laws that it passes, and it is from those laws that uh, departments and agencies get the authority to regulate. Uh, And so proponents of the RAINS Act will argue, well, yeah, so Congress, you know, gave these agencies the power. It should take a closer look at how it how those agencies are implementing these laws. Mm. And if they're not doing it in a way that Congress thinks is appropriate, they should uh, should, you know, prevent that from happening. So far, so good. Um, the problem, as we were kind of hinting at earlier, is that you know Congress is uh, not very well equipped to spend a lot of time on these issues. It's not particularly expert. I mean, this is one reason that it gives this power to the agencies in the first place, because those agencies are filled with people who have expertise in a particular area. And so members of Congress don't necessarily you know, have that expertise. And so one concern is that, you know, this will become effectively just a partisan punching bag. Right. Right. So it'll be a chance for members of Congress to grandstand about uh, environmental protection or, uh, you know, issues in health care or education or, you know, take any of the multitude of areas that the federal government has a a regulatory role. Uh, And then it will become effectively just sort of a, a chance for, you know, speeches for delay and the things that actually do need to get through. Oh, and then, uh, yeah. Everybody just agrees some need to get through. We'll just get delayed and delayed. Stagnation. Yeah, I mean, so this is a worry. Um, you know, another approach um, that's been offered, I think Senator Portman in Ohio is the leading proponent of this, is to uh, sort of a version of the RAINS Act that is, uh, again, sort of moves things up front. It requires the agencies to do quite a lot more analysis of the regulations before they can move forward. Hmm. Um, so it, you know, it, it sort of builds on what presidents have been trying to do that I mentioned earlier in terms of this cost-benefit analysis. Right. Um, but it makes it more rigorous and it requires a, a wider use of evidence. And so this, I think, uh, you know, may be a, a promising middle ground where you, uh, you know, everybody, well, most people would agree, I think, that you know, smart regulation is better than dumb regulation. Uh, and you have, you know, the chance here to apply, um, you know, some advanced econometric procedures to trying to figure out what kind of benefits and costs will flow from a given issue. I mean, the argument there, of course, is that not all benefits might be quantifiable. Right. Right. Um, you know, it is, you, can, you can sort of say clean air is worth X number of lives, and we can make up a number for how much a life is worth. Um, but, you know, this is getting into the realm of subjectivity pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, I mean, right. Recently, we've just been hearing about the, OM, the Office of uh, – uh, management and budget, I guess, for um, as, as they've been trying to 
create the the real numbers for the um, health care initiative that's being proposed by Congress, is, isn't it – isn't one idea too that they, they make an office – that is kind of an independent office that runs the regulatory world, that runs all these regulations to make sure they're not getting out of hand, that's similar to the OMB. Yeah, well, I think that's an interesting uh, proposal. What, you've, what you had in, you know, in Congress in the 1970s was actually a reaction to OMB, which is a presidential agency, okay. uh, and which is responsible for you know, the vetting of regulations as they move through the executive branch process. Um, and on the budget side, you know, Congress grew suspicious. This was, you know, the Nixon era. Right. Um, there was a lot of uh, suspicion to go around, quite frankly. Uh, but they were, you know, very happy to, uh, you know, for for a long while, had been very happy to listen to OMB and to take their budgetary projections uh, as the basis for their own work. In the 1970s, as they worried that OMB was becoming more politicized, they uh, created the Congressional Budget Office. Was designed there you to go. Yeah. independent analysis. Um, and, of course, yeah, as you say, uh, OMB and CBO both have been wrapped up in this uh, effort to, uh, to score, as they call it, the, uh, the effects of the uh, health care proposal that the Republican caucus has put out you know, this last week or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so the proposal, which kind of ties into the RAINS Act and to some of these other efforts to sort of uh, have Congress pre-approve regulations, that is basically about having um, you know, more resources, more expertise, so they can actually have an idea of what the impact of these regulations would be. Um, so instead of building up their personal staff, they would create, again, a nonpartisan counterpart to the Congressional Budget Office. Some people have called it the Congressional Regulation Office. You know, you could come up with a catchier acronym if you wanted. Uh, Crow. That would be a yeah. Crow. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Core. I don't know. Yeah. We, could, we could come up with something, I'm sure. Uh, but in any case, that would uh, be one way for, you know, nonpartisan uh, analysis to uh, to sort of foreclose, we would hope, at least some of the partisan grandstanding you might expect otherwise. Yeah. Now, of course, as we've seen with the Health Care Act, that doesn't guarantee anything. No. Um, you know, the, the grandstanding, you know, the efforts actually to undermine CBO's numbers by proponents of the bill have been right. pretty notable. Yeah, because they were uh, so off. and. So these new numbers are going to be off, except they like parts of the numbers. So those numbers aren't off, but the other numbers are off. That's why this gets crazy. And the battle between executive and uh, and Congress, it's I guess it's kind of it's permanent, right? And let's Andrew, let's take a break. Come back. I want you to tell me if you think is there any way on earth that Donald Trump's going to limit his power? And then I also want to hear what your take is on the two for one. Uh, um, regulation kind of uh, mandate or proposal that President um, that President Trump has put out there. That, to me, seems pretty creative. If we can get rid of two regulations for every new one passed, that you know might clean house a little bit. We'll take a break, folks. Continue the discussion. Presidential power and its battle with Congress. How do we keep that balance? Uh, Professor Andrew Rudolevich joins us from Maine. Stick with us.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us, Professor Andrew Rudolevich joins us. Uh, he is a professor of government at Bowdoin College and heads the President's and Executive Politics section of the American Political Science Association. Uh, Dr. Rudolevich, thank you for being with us. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, how do you pronounce your university? It's uh, Bowdoin, actually. Bowdoin. Like the clothing store. I like it. Bowdoin. Um, uh, yeah, only uh, we sell uh, even cooler clothing, of yeah, course. Yeah, for sure you do. Yeah, you've got all your logos on those on your yeah, sweatshirts. Yeah. Hey, talk to me. Do you think there's any way – I mean, President Trump talked it up big about how President Obama had you know overregulated and it needs mm-hmm. to be brought back into power. Is there any way he'll sign off and, and lose – more power as a president um, and and follow some of these ideas from Congress? Yeah, it's a very interesting question uh, because presidents, you know, they are, you know, individuals, of course, but they're also institutions, right? Right. They are designed to, you know, in a way just to protect the prerogatives of their office. And so it would be pretty interesting to me to see a president, uh, President Trump or anybody else, you know, sort of willingly give up some of his authority over the executive branch. Yeah, because um, that's permanent. That, that'll be handed down. That's his legacy to the presidency. Well, it could be, yeah. Um, and that's something the presidents have tended to resist. They don't want to leave the office weaker than they found it. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see whether that comes through. I mean, it's one thing if you're President Trump to, to say how terrible all the Obama regulations were. Right. But right. over the course of a year or two, these are going to be Trump regulations. Exactly. And you might think that those are a little better. Yeah, totally. Those ones are thoughtful. Those ones are necessary. You know, the Obama ones, yeah, sure, get rid of those. But not yeah. uh, these ones are, are mine, they're good, and you shouldn't, you know, you and Congress shouldn't be stomping on my uh, my authority as chief executive. Well, what do you think of his two-for-one regulation order? Well, it's an interesting idea. A lot is going to depend, you know, the proof is in the pudding right. on this kind of thing because the details really matter. Uh, you know, there have been efforts uh, in some of the European, uh, Western European uh, democracies to implement this kind of thing, and they've had some success. Uh, the question is trying to locate, uh, you know, orders that sort of match up in size with the new one that you want to do. I mean, it's, it's not going to do anything, obviously, if you have one big regulation come in and two really tiny ones go out. Uh, but you have to try to match up, and this is in the order, right? Try to match up the uh, the impact of those regulations yeah. uh, on the economy. Um, but how do you a identify them? Again, we come back to this sort of tricky issue of really specifying costs and benefits. Uh, but then, secondly, of course, one thing that has to be kept in mind is that um, you know there's something called the Administrative Procedure Act, um, which was passed back in the 1940s as the uh, I'm sorry, the late 1930s as the um, uh, Government's growing, right? And you have, you know, the uh, uh, expansion of the regulatory state in the first place. And so there were, you know, Congress and felt rightly so that you needed some kind of way to order this and right. make sure that the uh, the different agencies weren't just issuing regulations willy-nilly. So the Administrative Procedure Act puts in place uh, a fairly long process for, you know, uh, publishing a draft regulation, and then you allow public comment on that draft regulation. Uh, then you make revisions and you respond to the various comments that came in. And then, only then, do you issue this final regulation, which has to be justified by the evidence in the public record. Uh, and if it's not, then there's cause for courts to step in uh, and try to overturn that regulation. We've seen that you know, with a number of presidents, maybe uh, most prominently right, a couple of Obama-era 
uh, environmental regulations are are still stuck in court, right? Um, and you know haven't gone into effect because of that process. So. Um, you know, if you are uh, trying to do this two-for-one deal, um, you know, you ha- all three of those regulations, right, the, the one that you're putting in place and the two you're trying to get rid of, actually have to go through that same process. Yeah. Uh, so it's not quite as simple a matter as saying, well, the president told me to cancel two regulations. We can do that. You've got <laughs> to justify, you know, through this APA process and ultimately probably to a court that there's a reason to get rid of this regulation. Interesting. Is it I, – I, it seems like in a way it's easier for the president to – uh, to get rid of um, through executive order, past executive orders, than it is for Congress to do anything about it. Yeah, well, presidents, I mean, an executive order can, you know, can matter quite a lot when it's issued, but it's also pretty fragile. Yeah. A subsequent president can get rid of it with another executive order. Uh, whereas Congress, which can also get rid of executive orders, has to pass a law to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we know, Congress has a hard time, you know, <laughs> coming together to pass even things that there might be widespread agreement on, uh, you know, much less things that are very controversial. Yeah. Uh, no, Congress can act, right? Remember, uh, President Obama, you know, promised early in his term that he would close uh, the Guantanamo Bay detention facility. Um, and he was not able to do that because right. Congress, uh, Congress basically passed budget bills that you know refused to, to spend any money on uh, detaining those particular people anywhere else. And so, you know, that sort of checkmated the president. And that can happen, right? Again, executive orders uh, flow from statute, or they flow from your direct constitutional authority. They're not it's supposed to be made up out of whole cloth. And so, you know, Congress or the courts can weigh in on how those are implemented. Right. It's pretty easy for a president to uh, just rescind an executive order or to revoke it. Um, again, the, uh, there's a, a process for doing that, but that's a lot easier than going through the legislative process. What, what do you sense going forward? I mean, Trump, President Trump's only been in you know, less than 60 days and a lot of furor, a lot of, uh, a lot of intrigue going on. But you know, he's, he's avowed that he's, he and his staff, oh, Steve O'Bannon said, we've got to tear down the administrative state, mm-hmm. which is, I'm assuming, is really part, mostly the regulatory state as well. And um, do, do you see that there will be a lot of movement uh, in shrinking the size of government? And did our forefathers ever anticipate this much regulation? Okay, yeah, lots of good questions in there. Uh, well, the administrative state, as you suggest, really is you know just a description of the <clears throat> the pretty large bureaucracy that's grown up over the course of the last you know not quite a hundred years. Yeah, you know, with a with a, an eye towards delivering services that yeah, I think it's certainly true people didn't expect the federal government to be delivering. The tricky part, I guess, for deconstruction of that state is that all of those were created for a reason, which is that people wanted them, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, uh, by vote, you know, when right? You have, uh, right. You know, economic collapse in the New Deal. People wanted regulation of Wall Street. They wanted uh, the creation of things like Social Security, later Medicare. Um, you know, the, so the growth of, you know, federal regulation, you know, follows partly the fact that we're a much more nationalized country than we were, you know, back in the 18th century. Yeah. It took a week to, you know, cross state lines. Um, now, with instantaneous communication and uh, transportation, you know, it's uh, a much more connected country and national regulation makes more sense. 
Um, there was, of course, also during the 1960s, um, you know, a lot of expansion of federal power in part because the states were, you know, not providing equal protection of the law to all of their citizens. Right. And so the creation of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, you know, are expansions of federal power that are reacting again to uh, state behavior uh, that was not ideal. Um, and so, you know, scaling all of that back means you have to identify things that people don't want the federal government to do. The problem is we all can think of something we don't want the federal government to do, but it's probably not the same thing. Right. I could name right. five things that I think are annoying about federal regulation, but they might be a different five things than you. Um, and so to, you know, to actually scale that back in a systematic way is going to be difficult, uh, partly because, again, all of these programs have constituencies. And so when we think, yeah, the agriculture department, there's 100,000 people there. We should we could really wipe that back. Or we're giving way too much money to right. farmers for not growing food and so forth. And yet, of course, uh, you know. Farmers would have a rather different argument about that. And, uh, you know, we might also, you know, when we visit the supermarket, uh, want to make sure that we're, you know, providing a wide range of produce and so forth. So it's a, you know, these issues get tricky pretty fast. Um, <laughs> and this is something I think the uh, the Trump administration is finding out. Um, you know, these the, the government is created by Congress. It's not created by the president. And uh, Congress you know, again, has an interest in protecting the parts of the government that help its constituencies. Right. So you're always going to be able to find somebody, you know, on a committee or subcommittee who's going to work, you know, you know, his or her hardest to make sure that this program, you know, that might help fishermen or farmers or auto mechanics oh. or what have you, right, is going to stay around. It um, never so, ends. Yeah. So when you come to, you know, so... President Trump has put a number of processes in place for these executive orders, you know, uh, talking about reorganizing the federal government or rolling back regulations, revisiting, you know, uh, you know, certain parts of, you know, more recent regulation, you know, whether it be the Dodd-Frank law or, uh, you know, environmental protection, right? And that, you know, that will have an effect, right? Yeah. You know, that that yeah. will be revisited, uh, but it will not be immediate. And, you know, it's hard to know whether that will have uh, a long-lasting impact. Uh, President Nixon actually tried to reorganize the federal government pretty systematically. He wanted to cut the number of departments down from, I think it was 11 at the time, to something like four major departments, um, mm. you know, to sort of get rid of duplication yeah. and so forth. And this, you know, basically went nowhere. Well, uh, because that, members of Congress were, you know, wanted to protect their own jurisdictions. That's it. And, and you see that there is so much duplication. There's, I mean, every department has... Similar committees and or similar groups and uh, and and responsibilities. Uh, I don't know how. And the te- it just seems like those tentacles grow out and get embedded. And after twenty, thirty, forty years, I don't know how you remove, you know, all the oak brush. It's everywhere. It's taken over. But uh, we appreciate your insight, Professor Andrew Rudolevich. Thank you so much from Bowdoin University, Bowdoin College up in Maine and your time, your insights on this. Folks, it's complicated. So when a politician like President Trump throws an idea out there that we're going to cut back regulation, that's great. Doing it is a whole other ballgame. Whole other ballgame, as Professor Rudolevich taught us. We'll take a break, come back. Doesn't mean, by the way, it doesn't need to be done. And maybe a little uh, trimming could help a lot. But then you get to the questions, what are we going to cut? And uh, how do we decide? crazy stuff. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be back. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Just all you got to do is go in and pull just pull a regulation. Just grab it and just pull it out. Right. I mean, like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen if you just grab a regulation, just maybe an old one, maybe from the 70s, just grab it and just pull it out. Simple. Is everything from the 70s old? Yeah. Okay. I was there. Me too, apparently. But but it's just not that easy. No, you, you start pulling on it, and all of a sudden <laughs> they're connected to other things. They're built upon other things. Seventies music this is good cop show music. This is hey, pull out the regulation music. Just reach in, grab it, just start pulling. Yeah. It's like a weed. It's not that easy. But I think the process that the president has put down is if you're going to pull, you're going to put in a new regulation. You have to pull out two. Well, yeah, right? but it's complicated. What, what that would end up doing is having everyone look at all the regulations. That's yeah. really what he's trying to yeah. do. Yeah, no, I love that idea. I think that's brilliant. But they, he's also, for example, saying to the State Department, "You gotta, you gotta cut." And he's probably giving them a number. You gotta cut your budgets. You gotta yeah. cut everything. You start pulling on one country's program of, you know, AIDS fighting AIDS program, and it goes to seventy countries and employs. 400 people. Right. It's crazy. You're supposed to be the jobs president. Yeah. I know. You might be be losing jobs if we keep pulling regs, but you got to have regs or this thing's going to just be suffocated. It reminds me of just, you know, the oak brush in my yard that just takes over. Crazy. All right, folks. It ain't easy being president. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, more fun, more ideas to help you live longer, love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. This is the show where we help you uh, We help you live your life, for heaven's sakes. We give you the latest, greatest research, the information you need to know about how to make it through this crazy thing we call life. And who better to do it than with Jeffrey Simpson and, of course, Terry South. In fact, today, ah, I got great news, for, bad news for Terry, but... Um, it's going to be a really good lesson for you. Uh-oh. Everybody, you got to stick around for hour number three of the show because we're talking about superheroes and how destructive they are to little boys. Fake news. <laughs> it's not. They're not destructive, but it doesn't make children more uh, service-oriented, more giving and superhero-like. It actually just makes them a little more aggressive, which may explain Terry. What? It, you are a superhero wannabe. Well, I didn't grow up. I know that's the problem. Oh, sorry. Right. So, as yeah. a child, my formative years weren't influenced by this necessarily. There was a lot of GI Joe, so maybe there was. I we'll, don't know. We'll have to ask our professor later um, if. No, maybe, never mind. There was plenty. I now that I think about yeah, it, yeah. it's not superheroes like there are today, but there's a lot of cartoons and robots. And That's unfortunate like that, so. because he probably could have developed some sort of superhero powers oh, had sure. he been able to start early enough. Well, I think we've I identified Terry as a super cynic. 
Is that your superhero power? It is probably my superhero power. I mean, really, and I believe cynicism is a good thing for us to have a little bit of it. You you have a healthy dose, a good good healthy dose of it. I try to dial it back. People get tired of it. You do, but... What would your superpower be? My superpower? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Intuition. Tuition? Intuition. Oh, intuition. Yeah, paying tuition for my children. Superpower. That is basically a superpower. I'm very intuitive. I have good discernment. That's Mm. my superpower. I can read people like a book. I also have a superpower ability to sleep once my (sighs) earplugs are in. My superpower would probably involve uh, being able to function on only a couple hours of sleep. Really? Yeah. I, I do not possess that power. Oh, you're a great gift, then. That is a good gift. We, we've got a lot to talk about. And we'll use our superpowers throughout the entire show. Why not? Uh, including when Donald Trump says we are going to you know, make America great again and get this economy flying. Is that rhetoric? And does, does any president even know how to get the economy going again. There's been a lot of theories, supply side theories. There's been, hey, let's educate them up, make them more creative theories. And in reality, they're finding out none of them really have moved the economy much. It's always forces beyond the president that move the economy. Like President uh, Clinton took a lot of credit for the economy finishing on a high note with sort of a tech Dot com increase that explosion. happened. But that really had nothing to no. do with him. Well, and then a year or two or three later, there was a dot com implosion. Yeah. So, and it, no one rushed to take the uh, fall for that one either. So, But we spend a lot of money on policies, and you can have a short term gain mm-hmm. by injecting you know, a lot of money. There was President Bush had the, uh, what, the, he had the tax plan, everyone got right? a rebate. Yeah. And what do people do? They put the money in, mm-hmm. in savings. They didn't go and spend it like he wanted to. Uh, President Obama spent money on the on um, energy resources and mm-hmm. conservation. And what did people do with that money? They went and bought golf carts. Yes. And instead of buying like an electric vehicle to drive to work, they drove. They bought an extra electric vehicle to drive around their house. Yeah. Their houses were so big with McMansions. Remember all that fun? So our guest today is basically saying, ah, we don't really know how to move the economy or the economies would all be moving and would be moving more than 1.5% consistently. In the 50s, they knew how to do it. Or did they? Or was that just the IBM mainframe computers kicking in or whatever? And starting just the IBM movement may have helped a little bit. So because of that, computers, people were more productive. Well, and, and that actually was a proven false, apparently. That was false, too. Wow. It, it may have been. This is sad and crazy. Yeah. It may have been computers were created. They printed more paper, oh. which generated a really weird false economy. And a paper became an explosive value-add concept. Huh. You would think the internet would be killing and making our economy boom, but there's actually no data showing the internet is actually making the economy boom. Right. Weird. You'd think cell phones would make our economy boom, but there's no data yet Just showing. Just the cell phones themselves at yeah, times. you'd think. Yeah. No. 
So we'll get to it. It's a pretty interesting little discussion coming up. By the way, he, uh, an economist will be joining us and a historian. Very deep, 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 deep article. Deep. We had to, I mean, we had deep. to get some shovels out. So deep, we were shoveling. And I listened to it with Siri. But some people find his conclusions controversial. Absolutely. Because why not? Well, and also because... It wouldn't be interesting. People running for office want you to think they know what they're doing. Right. Right. They're a lawyer. They know the economy. We know the economy. Right. We'll get to all this fun. All that ahead. Plus, uh, McKenna Baus, Baus in the House, will be joining us with a little mind bender trying to get us to just open up our minds a bit. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the world? MSNBC teased last night that they had obtained the first two pages of President Donald Trump's 2005 tax returns that were sent to investigative reporter David Clay Johnson, who has been on the show before. Uh, as they revealed this information, Donald Trump, uh, they revealed that he had earned more than $150 million in 2005, paid just a small percentage of that in regular federal income taxes. The documents show Trump and his wife, Melania, paid $5.3 million in regular federal income taxes, a rate of 4%. However, the Trumps paid an additional $31 million in the alternative minimum tax. Trump has previously called for that tax to be eliminated because, as you can see, there's a... Uh, because he paid it. Yeah. Everything so far looks legal. The White House said in a statement, it is totally illegal to steal and publish tax ah, returns. Totally. David Clay Johnson appeared on ABC this morning, talked about what the documents don't tell us about President Trump. Well, it doesn't tell us who Trump is beholden to. I mean, we know, for example, that he owes money to Deutsche Bank, which is deeply involved in money laundering for the Russians. Uh, he owes money to the communist uh, bank in China, the Bank of China, which is also the largest tenant in Trump Tower. We have a U.S. president who's in hock to a bank in China. Um, we don't know who he's getting his revenue from. We don't know who his partners are or who he's done business with in foreign countries. And that could have major national security implications. So to sum hmm. things up, the White House says the documents are real. President Trump says the story's fake. Well, and illegally obtained, but so real that he paid more taxes, like double, well, yeah. double what Obama paid. Right. So, so it's real enough to like make comments like that about, but fake enough that you shouldn't trust it. In the end, there's really no story. It shows that he paid his taxes. And paid his taxes 11 years ago. Yeah. So <laughs> good yeah. job. Good, Way to go. good job. Uh, if you want to hear that inter- interview we did, that Matt talked with uh, David Clay Johnson. I put that out on our Twitter feed Sweet. this morning. That was it's cool. It's from September we talked with him. Uh, defending Republican health care proposal Tuesday, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer declared that no one, there is no one who doesn't benefit from the plan. Spicer's claim came on the heels of the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office's report released Monday that found more than 24 million additional Americans may no longer have health insurance by 2026 under the GOP-backed American Health Care Act. This is it, Spicer said of the GOP plan. If we don't get this through, the goal of repealing Obamacare and in- instituting a system that will be patient-centered is going to be unbelievably difficult. Mm. Claiming things a lot of we already know. FBI Director James Comey will say on Wednesday whether his agency is investigating ties between President Trump's 2016 campaign and Russia. According to Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, the Rhode Island Democrat announced the impending decision Tuesday. He said Comey made the promise to both himself and Senator Lindsey Graham during a March 2nd meeting. Whitehouse said... uh, Comey assured the two senators he would confirm if an investigation exists and the scope of their Russia-Trump investigation because he had not been able to, at that point, say if there was one. So Hmm. there may be an announcement. 
Or maybe not. Or maybe not. And finally, yes, I believe by now most people have seen this video of the guy on BBC talking about South Korea and his kids come barging in the room. (laughs) They actually (laughs) talked to the media yesterday. Let's hear what they said. It says, the couple behind the latest viral sensation is speaking out for the first time, explaining the series of missteps that led to the adorable clip of two children crashing his dad's BBC interview. While Professor Robert Kelly did the interview over Skype from his home office, his wife, Kim Jong-A, was in the other room with the couple's two children. Uh, recording the interview from the TV using her phone. They tell the Wall Street, this is off to the Wall Street Journal, when the four-year-old Marion saw her father on screen, she got excited, likely uh, recognizing cute. the room uh, that he was speaking from. She ran off to find him <laughs> without her mother noticing. The eight-month-old brother, James, quickly followed her in his baby walker, and because of a slight <laughs> delay, Kim didn't see the children appear on screen until they'd already been in the room for a few moments. She's recording, and she saw yeah, him on screen. She looks up and goes, oh, man. That would have, uh, you know, so Kelly takes full responsibility for the uh, incident. He usually uh. locks the door when he does these interviews from his office. Kelly and Kim feared he might not be invited for any more interviews. Oh, come on. But the BBC quickly saw the clip's potential and asked Kelly if they could run the clip online. He initially declined, then agreed. He found himself having to put his phone on airplane mode the following day as it blew up with notifications. That's the couple sad. says Marion and James didn't get in trouble. Yes, I was mortified, but I also want my kids to feel comfortable coming home to me, Kelly sure. says. I mean, it was a, it was terribly cute. The couple also explained Marion's sassy walk as she entered the office. She was in a hippity-hoppity mood that day because she just <laughs> celebrated her birthday at school. Oh. Uh, see, per- that, is, that is the perfect example of making family work. Right. You know what? This can only help this guy's career. Well, yeah. More think. people are going to become aware of his work and who he is. Some of the interview clips are, are nuts from him and his family talking about it because as they're trying to talk, the kids are like his his baby son's his hands are everywhere, pushing him in the face. Yeah. And the daughter just all of a sudden, he asks her a question. She looks at the camera and just goes, Rah! or something. <laughs> He's like, this is my life, people. This is how I live. You know what? That's uh, that, why I think it went so viral is everyone relates to it. Wouldn't you love life, it though. if your kids just came storming into the studio right now? Yeah. They'd probably just be asking you for money, though, they, or for your, you know, to borrow your car. True. Can I borrow your car, and do you have $20? They're not so cute anymore. Yeah, that's the funny thing about – see, God makes babies really cute, mm. right? Because if they just came as teenagers, there'd be a lot of abandoned children. He gives you enough time to fall in love with these little critters. The wife is the one I feel bad about because she was trying to do the job of recording. And imagine her shock when all of a sudden the kids appear in her recording. Yeah. Then she has to drop the recording and she came in faster than anybody and had to then remove the children on her knees. She slid across the floor. (laughs) Don't they just have a DVR though? Who knows? Like why was she using her phone? She was making like an Insta moment. She was probably going to hmm. get that out on Instagram because that's how you do it today. Did you not know that, Jeffrey? That's, that's what the it. kids are doing? Yeah. Hey, it's, uh, it's the Ides of March. Beware the Ides of March. Caesar must die, die, die. Wow. Whoa. Did you hear something? No. Is that why when I walked in, you're like, et tu brute? Did you say that to me? Yeah, and I uh, I hid the knife that I was holding. Well, it was also like, Matt, could you turn around and just look at the wall for a second? Matt, look at the television. Just look over there. And then I hear this, whee. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> yeah. And then there was a, a slight pain in your back, but mm-hmm. it, it actually took care of the, the bigger pain that you were experiencing. Right. Yeah. And then because it's Jeff, he starts quoting random movies and goes, that's not a knife. 
<laughs> and then it's weird. So. That wasn't then, bad. And then the whole thing got really weird. Uh, it was uh, <laughs> the 15th of March was marked by several religious observances and became notorious as the date of the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 BC by Brutus. That you, Brutus. You mean it didn't just happen in the play? No. Like this no. really happened. Yeah, this really okay. happened. Uh, there are a couple references made when we are speaking of the great betrayer. One, of course, took 30 pieces of silver to turn in Jesus Christ, a Christian um, myth. Hmm. That's what this says. Yeah. Uh, I actually don't know it as a myth. But um, the other often equally reviled, certainly by Dante, was Marcus Junius Brutus Minor, known most uh, to most as Brutus, who betrayed Julius Caesar. So there you have it. Et tu, Brute. That's a shame. Imagine how much better Caesar salads would be. Great point. Really good point. We lost him too early. <laughs> if only he could have lived a little longer, the, the Caesar salad would be so much better. Um, see, this is the insight you don't get on every other show. Only on this show. I got another little piece of insight. So I listen to articles yes, with my Siri-like voice machine on my phone. I don't know what we call it. It's, I a think funct- it's a function of the iPhone. I think it's the Siri-like voice machine is actually what it's called. That's what I think they call it. I'm starting to be quite disappointed with her because, for example— It's all monotone for one, right? It's all monotone, and it seems like her vocabulary is regressing. Yeah. A lot of people have the same yeah. uh, feel about most of the automated assistants on phones. It, They're not progressing it, fast enough. It told me to polish my resume. You and know, I'm like, what? I what? think she's spending too much time on social media. Yeah. Probably. And that's what happens. I think she's, I think she's got a, an issue, like a drug issue. She, I, instead of polishing my resume, I'm supposed to polish my resume. Instead of a superhero, it's a superhero. A superhero. Superhero. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm not against a superhero or even the superhero combo platter. Mm. I'm good either way. But Siri, pick up your game. Apple, pick up your game, for heaven's sakes. That's all you need to know. Happy Ides of March. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, the golden age. Was there ever really an economic golden age in the United States? Well, post-World War II, there was. How come we haven't been able to create another one of those? And is Donald Trump actually going to be capable of doing it? We'll have an economist uh, giving his insight. Stick with us. Make America Great Again was the war cry of President Donald Trump, and this phrase is often associated with America's dipping economy. Mark Levinson shares in his book, An Extraordinary Time, The End of the Postwar Boom and Return of the Ordinary Economy, how this dipping economy might not be reversible. Mark is on air with us today to talk about some of his insights. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for being with us today. 
Hello, Matt. Glad to be with you. To, now, you're an economist, a historian, and um, I, I read a, an article you put out, and I thought, holy cow, we we may have been sold a bill of goods for many, many years about the economy. Is it is it your contention that really there's very little that economists know to do to actually fix the economy? Uh, I think that that's what you're saying is, is on track. Uh, my contention here is that we had really in the quarter century after World War II, uh, up until 1973, extremely strong economic growth in the United States and all around the world. And we've taken that as normal. We've taken that as our benchmark. Mm. Uh, the economy ought to perform that way all the time. But in fact, that was abnormal. Uh, and and it was exceptional and it was nice. Our living standards rose really very nicely and, and people got much better off during that period. But normal economic growth historically is fairly slow economic growth. It's a you know percent and a half, two percent a year. It's not bad, but it's nothing like the four or five or six percent a year that uh, some people were promising in the presidential campaign, for example. <laughs> right. So really, I mean, if we stay at one and a half percent, it's pretty normal. Yes, historically, it's really quite normal. Here's the thing. You know, when, when the economy is growing at, say, uh, 5%, uh, around the world, the average growth rate was really 5% a year between uh, 48 and 73. When the economy is growing at that rate, uh, then your living standard doubles in 14 years. Hmm. Okay? It quadruples in 20 years, 28 years. And so uh, an individual can see, I mean, imagine you're over the course of, of your childhood and young adulthood, your family's living standard has quadrupled. And, and you can feel that. You can feel that in, a, in better housing, in a better car, in new appliances, in vacations. It, you know, your living standard rises in all kinds of ways. When the economy is expanding at 2% a year, it takes about 35 years to double, mm. not 14 years. Yeah. So... So growth is really slow, and you don't necessarily feel yourself getting better off year by year. And I think that lies at the root of a lot of the political discontents that you can uh, see are, are palpable now in the United States and in other countries, too. They have very much the same problem. Was what made the post-World you know, War II war boom possible, was it the hole that we had dug uh, you know, giving everything and all of our resources to this war, or what, what made it possible? Well, people normally associate the post-war boom with Reconstruction, but that's not actually the case. What made the, our economy and the world economy grow so quickly in the post-war world was that there was remarkable productivity growth. Productivity growth is, is kind of a complicated concept. It sounds very academic, but you can think of it basically as the average that a person produces in an hour of work. That's sort of a measure of productivity. And uh, after the war, there were a lot of things that could be done by governments uh, and by the private sector that raised productivity very, very quickly. Uh, just to give you a couple of examples, we had millions upon millions of people working in very low productivity agricultural jobs uh, after the war. In the United States, people don't remember this, in the United States, we had three million mules on farms at the end of World War II. <laughs> there were a lot of people out there doing very low productivity work. We were able to take that labor and move it into uh, other sectors, especially manufacturing. 
So somebody who had been plowing a field behind a mule was suddenly tending a very expensive machine. Enormous productivity gains from that sort of thing. Right. We built the interstate highway system. Uh, the interstate highway system made it possible for businesses to ship goods longer distances. It made it possible for workers to uh, commute longer distances to find better jobs. So we had better functioning uh, product markets, labor markets. There were a lot of economic gains from that. And we had very, very rapid increases in education levels after the war. Uh, the GI Bill helped. We spent very heavily on building up our colleges and universities after the war. And so the average education level in the United States rose very quickly. Uh, all of those things brought us very, very strong productivity growth for a prolonged period. The problem is that once you've picked this low-hanging fruit, you've picked it. You can't do it again. So, yes, we can now go back and build a new exit on the interstate, but that's not going to have the same effect on productivity as building the interstate in the first place. That's true. So that's sort of where we are. So then um, when we hear, I mean, again, if President Trump keeps his word and can get all of these jobs back to middle America, it, it's not necessarily going to increase productivity growth. It will bring more revenues in, but um, it won't necessarily increase the growth. We, I guess, need some other kind of transcendent innovation. Well, I think that's right. Productivity growth can can come in a couple of ways. One is that the government can certainly help by making investments in education, in transportation, in uh, R and D. Um, the, you know, those are, are positive things. Uh, the the difficulty with that, from a political point of view, is that the payoff is very uncertain. We know right now that if we spend money on research and development, in the long run, it's very likely to be positive for productivity growth. Is that going to happen during the term of anyone who's now in the U.S. government? Um, we don't know. We yeah. really don't have any idea how quick the payoff is. Uh, we also have uh, productivity growth coming out of the private sector, and, and that's really the key. You know, uh, you have new technologies, and, and people tend to associate growth and, and productivity with new technology, but it's really not the technology that matters. It's how private companies take the technology and use it to change the way they're doing business. Hmm. Those things happen unexpectedly. Uh, you know, we got a boost in productivity in the late 1990s. Why? Well, research uh, and development that had gone on 30 and 40 years earlier into communications and uh, information processing came together, and we had the Internet boom. Okay, right. This was not because of investments that we made in the 1990s. This was because of investments we made in the 1950s and 1960s, and finally pieces had come together, and businesses started figuring out how to uh, take this technology and use it to advantage. So these things happen quite unexpectedly, and they don't fit political timetables. Interesting. And I mean, I guess this this goes back to because we hear it a lot kind of in within the talking head world, uh, trickle down economics, Reaganomics. You know, Reagan had a had a view, a vision of how we're going to do it, uh, get the money back, I guess, into the into the business owners and then those and they'll create profits with it and it'll trickle down. Many argue that didn't work. The other idea of government creating, you know, better, stronger educational systems were promised a lot of different things. D do you sense that it's something that really our our governing bodies can do 
much about or as as you're saying is it more about the businesses creating innovation well here's the story in my book an extraordinary time uh, and and this is a very international book because we had much the same development in many other countries we had this rapid productivity growth uh, after the war in uh, within a growing welfare state people were generally quite happy with that at the end of 1973 economic growth started to slow down very rapidly because of poor productivity growth. And all of a sudden, this social liberal welfare state model seemed to be unable to deliver the goods anymore. So people turned to other models. Some countries tried what we would call conservative economic models, Reagan, Thatcher, uh, Helmut Kohl in Germany, models that said, okay, you cut taxes, you try to reduce regulations, uh, and uh, you, you, you provide uh, some kind of uh, incentives for, for the private sector. You shrink government. Well, those models didn't increase uh, productivity growth at all. They, they did not work for that purpose. You had an attempt in France, people forget this now, to have a more traditionally socialist government to deal with poor productivity growth. That was a disaster. Mm. Uh, that didn't work either. So it's, it's not like people haven't tried different things. We've had different models used in, in different countries. And, and the bottom line is that in the short term, government really can't do much about productivity growth. There, there are no buttons, no levers. There's nothing that somebody in Washington can do to say, make the economy grow faster. Uh, we like to think that the government has control over things like this, and it doesn't. And and interestingly, um, yet we you even hear it in the rhetoric of this week. You know, regulation, regulatory management. If we could just cut back on a lot of the regulations and the taxation issues of our corporations, it would then spur or spark some of this creativity. Um, do you do you sense those avenues have any leverage to to create productivity increase? We certainly tried that in the 1980s, for example, and uh, people are surprised when they hear this, but of the lower marginal tax rates in the 1980s under President Reagan uh, did not increase productivity. Productivity was not better during the Reagan years than it had been in the earlier years. Uh, so the, the, the rate of productivity growth did not pick up because of that. It's not clear that uh, marginal tax rates are particularly important in increasing productivity. Some of the strongest productivity growth that we had in the United States was back in the 50s when we had very, very high tax rates, far higher than today. Uh, as for regulations, there are probably some regulations that stand in the way of productivity growth. There may well be some regulations that actually encourage productivity growth. Mm. And uh, what uh, the, the putting this out as a general proposition, fewer regulations will bring us higher productivity – uh, I don't think that stands up. Right, right. You know, uh, it's just it's fascinating, Mark, and I, I think it it may bring us to a space where we need to rethink our expectation. A lot of this sounds like. Um, let's take a break. Come back. Mark Levison is joining us. He is the author of The Golden Age: An Extraordinary Time, the end of the post, uh, uh, the end of the post-war boom, and a return of the ordinary economy. He is um, he is an economist and uh, formerly finance and economics editor of the Economist magazine in London. He's teaching us that maybe it's not our political leaders that are going to create this boon again. 
and uh, what what maybe we need to be doing to um, either manage our expectation or look toward what might be the next uh, the next generator, the next synergy creating moment. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, joining us is Mark Levinson. He is the author of the book An Extraordinary Time, The End of the Post-War, Post-War Boom and the Return of the Ordinary Economy. And he's here to walk us through what an extraordinary time we had, basically, I guess, from about the 50s to the 80s, early 80s, late 70s. Um, but those times don't necessarily mark what's normal. And, Mark, walk us through... Uh, you don't want this to be hopeless, right? I mean, the economy is still rolling along one and a half. Uh, hopefully, if we could get it to two percent, we we probably ought to be happy with that. Sure, and and I'm definitely not hopeless. Um, I, you know, the economy is by no means shrinking. Uh, people's incomes in general are rising. Uh, they're not rising at the pace that we would like them to rise. Right. I think the the issue here is really not that that uh, people are sinking. It's that we're not, we don't see ourselves uh, getting better off year to year. We're not confident that our children are going to be a whole lot better off than we are. And, and that's really a, a, a different issue. I think we've really got a case where uh, expectations have outrun the possibilities. And, and you know, this is a problem for politicians, certainly. Uh, now, let, let me make uh, an important distinction here. Uh, in the short term, say, out over the next year, year and a half, the government has a lot of ability to affect the rate of economic growth, okay? If, if we get a, a huge tax cut, if we get a big increase in government spending, uh, if we get a big cut in interest rates or something like that, uh, yeah, for a while, the economy will do very nicely, not for very long, but for a brief while. But, but over the long run, uh, the economy's growth really depends on productivity growth, and that's where the government really doesn't have too much control. Do do we? I mean, so I mean, that's interesting because some of the things President Trump, uh, I mean, he was already taking credit for jobs and the stock market within the first month. Um, but these are, I guess, any changes government really makes will be will tend to be short lived, um, and and then it's really more up to the businesses uh, to do something. Do we? Do we? Are we innovating? Are we um, energizing the work? And are we getting better and better at creating productivity growth, or is that stagnant as well, just as a business leader? Uh, in, in the business sector, productivity growth has been relatively slow, certainly compared to what it's been in the past. Uh, but again, this happens because uh, of, of uh, outside forces and, and new technology. And so when something new comes along, uh, it takes a while. For, for businesses to adapt it. I mean, the, the famous uh, story in, in economic history uh, is how uh, modern electricity uh, was developed uh, in the 1870s and the 1880s with Thomas Edison's work, and it found its way into U.S. factories in the 1920s. Okay? There is a time lag here. And just because there's a new innovation, businesses don't throw out all of their existing equipment. They don't close down all of their existing factories and build new ones. 
it takes a while to figure out how to put these sorts of innovations to good use. Yeah. It is entirely possible that there are innovations coming that will lead to uh, very large increases in productivity. Uh, let me give you an example. There is a lot of talk now about a virtual reality. Well, at the moment, virtual reality is something you play games with, okay? It's not really something that's used much in the business sector. Is it possible that virtual reality has a lot of implications for business? Is it possible this technology will change the way in which business is done in some industries? I suppose so. If that happens, it could have a very significant impact and, and speed up productivity growth and speed up our economic growth. Mm. Or, or take a look at something like artificial intelligence. Uh, artificial intelligence is, is just really starting to come into use. And obviously, people have different understandings of exactly what that term means. But is it possible that uh, artificial intelligence is going to change the way in which a lot of companies do business? Will it let them produce uh, products and services more efficiently? That's entirely possible. Hmm. Uh, if that happens, then we could get a burst of productivity growth. So I don't mean to be uh, pessimistic here. I'm, I'm really not pessimistic at all. Uh, but uh, I am uh, convinced that governments overpromise here because when this is going to happen, how this is going to happen, is not something governments really control. It's, uh, productivity growth is mainly the result of these changes made in the private sector on an unpredictable schedule. Hmm. And you could even, I mean, we, we always hear about uh, the education system in China, and so and for so many of them in China, they're so much further ahead of us in STEM and other uh, areas. And I think I wonder if so. I mean, these things can impact us on a on a in a way they're positive. They improve our, 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 our personal economic growth. But really, it sounds like what we need is our innovations, major innovations. And then I'm assuming the countries that are most prepared would then handle innovation and handle the innovations more effectively. More productively. Well, productivity, productivity is not a zero-sum game, okay? Just because the Chinese uh, become more productive and more skilled doesn't mean that, oh, that hurts us. Right. So I think we have to be really careful there. Uh, it's very clear that having a more educated workforce is very important to productivity growth. I think that there's really no debate about that. Yeah. Uh, the, the question comes up again in a political context. Uh, if we spend an extra $10 on education today, when do we feel a productivity bang? And that's a question we can't answer. Hmm. Okay, that's where you get into this uh, uncertainty about what government can do and about uh, the, the limits of government involvement here, because there's really no way in which uh, we can truthfully tell people that, hey, if we increase this spending today, it's going to do something for us tomorrow. Uh, it may do something for us in the longer run, and that something is probably positive, but when you're a politician running for election every two years or six years or, or whenever it is, that's not a satisfactory answer. You need something now. Yeah, and it's it also maybe this is the reason why politicians have such a bad reputation, such low levels of uh, trust and in, in our politicians is because they they do make these promises that they really can't do much about, really. Well, voters want that. Okay, yeah. voters obviously want faster economic growth. But, but um, you know, my argument here is really there's just a limit to what government can deliver. We had a great run in the quarter century after the war. You know, we, people moved out of uh, 
uh, very uh, small and 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 cramped uh, and uncomfortable urban apartments to nice houses in the suburbs. Okay, uh, they got themselves cars, uh, they got themselves washing machines. Uh, living standards rose really rapidly, and and that really underpinned a, a lot of the uh, social and, and uh, political developments in the post-war period. Uh, but uh, can we repeat that? You know, I don't think that's something we can order up, and. And one of the, the challenges here is that this is really not a partisan issue. Right. Okay? We have had politicians from both parties in the United States and from all parties around the world insisting that if you only follow their plan, uh, you'll have faster economic growth. Uh, I think we just don't have much of a track record suggesting that that's true. What do you sense we should do as just – Joe Blow, the average, uh, you know, the average person maybe goes to college, gets a, gets an education. What what do I do, I guess, to manage my expectation and um, just, I guess, see that the the 50s to the 80s was a pretty extraordinary time and do the best with what I can today? What's what's my responsibility? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the first thing that we see is that uh, we're probably not going to be looking at really rapid wage increases for a while. Wage increases in general are, are tied to productivity. They don't always track it year by year. But if productivity is not growing very rapidly, then wages over time are likely not to grow very rapidly. So I think that that's one issue that you need to think of in planning your own economic future. Uh, I, I think that it's it's very clear that we continue to have a big wage premium for training and education. Uh, and so just on a personal level, uh, I think one needs to prepare oneself for that reality. Uh, there are plenty of people out there who will tell you that they don't like math, they're not comfortable working with computers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, these are the sorts of skills that uh, employers expect, and they're important skills these days in, in raising productivity within businesses, and you have to be prepared to do it. And and again, um I guess just managing the 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 benefit, the blessing. I mean, I grew up with uh, depression era grandparents that would look at me switching jobs a lot, and they they couldn't believe I would do that. Like, no, 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 Matt. You just get a job and you just hang on to it and you ride the wave. And um, so, I mean, just even generationally, how we look at our jobs, uh, it's different and. Maybe we need to look at them as more about we've got to do everything we can to be more productive personally, grow our income because of the wage premium, get what we can out of it instead of expecting our government or our leaders to, to flip the switch. Well, I think there's something to that. I think there is a challenge here for the private sector. You know, a lot of firms in, in the private sector, as, as I'm sure your listeners know well, have gone to making greater use of short-term labor or contingent labor. We'll hire you for the job as a contractor, and then you're gone again. And, and firms do that for, for short-term financial reasons, obviously. But when you hire people like that, uh, they're not necessarily committed to coming up with ideas that are going to make the firm better off. Right. Okay, they're not going to develop new ideas to improve the way that your company does business because they're not going to be around six months from now. So I think businesses really need to rethink their relationship to uh, their employees in that sense. If you want people to come up with the ideas and innovations that that um, are important to productivity growth, then you have to give them, the people who do that reason to want to do that for you. Great insight, Mark. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate uh, 
appreciate you. And, and the book, again, An Extraordinary Time, The End of the Postwar War Boom and a Return of the Ordinary Economy. Insights, folks. Uh, we can hope and, and pray and expect a lot from our government leaders. But honestly, we also need you know groundbreaking innovation to, to help us uh, continue such a boon. And, and maybe it's more important that we just start recognizing what we can do. Get an education, work hard, do what you can to expand your ability to, to make money in a, in a good, normal economy, growing 15 to 2% annually. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. McKenna Baus will be joining us. A little mind bender for us. Teenagers, are they replacing their smartphones? Are they replacing drugs and doing drugs with smartphones? Crazy, crazy question. Stick with us. Give it up now for the House of Bows. Welcome to her house. She is McKenna Bows. Welcome back, friends. McKenna Bows in the house. She's our uh, producer, our social media guru. And uh, today she's going to uh, be blowing our minds. Our kids using their phones instead of drugs. Is that the new drug? I personally hope so. <laughs> You do? Because, I, I mean, it's, it's a, I guess it's a kinder, gentler drug. I, in a way, yeah. The interesting thing is, is in the past 10 years, they've seen a steady decline in drug and alcohol use um, in teenagers. Not so much in college students, but in, in, teen, uh, in teenagers, middle schoolers, high school students, wow. et cetera. And that correlates with... The prevalence and the rise of cell phones and, you know, their popularity. And now this isn't proven yet. It is still just in the theory stages, but it's a theory that's gaining a lot of traction right now. That's good. Weird. Yeah. It's really interesting because what happens is they've looked at how – uh, people respond to having, you know, these phones and the games that you can play on them yeah. and, you know, the social media, you know, contact with other people. And the way that a lot of this research is showing is these phones act as almost a portable dopamine pump. They, you know, people feel good when they have their phone, when they're using their phone. And that is one of the reasons they don't feel that need to go sensation seek Interesting, elsewhere. yeah. Well, because I've walked... I walked into my living room with my kids all there on their phones, and it looks like a drug house. Yeah. Because they're all just lounging around, like, in the weirdest positions ever, <laughs> um, and they're all on phones. And I didn't think of it, but they, there's a little portable dopamine pump just making them feel good. Yeah. And so it's really interesting. Um, you know, there are, some people are saying, well, it, you know, it could be because – of, you know, better anti-drug, you know, education um, initiatives that have gone, (laughs) you know, into effect. And there's people who hope that that's the case because they want to believe that that has been effective. Um, But there still is a lot of reason to believe it's the phones. Uh, Teenagers, you know, ages 13 to 18, average about six and a half hours of screen media time per day. That includes phones, but also video games, things like that. Um, 73% have a smartphone or access to one. Wow. I mean, it's very, very pervasive. And, you know, that could have a lot of... Uh, yeah, totally. A, you know, correlation there. Though there's, you know, some uh, 
you know, counselors who are saying, I have a harder time and I have more conflicts with students who have a social media or like phone addiction uh-huh. as opposed to students who have these drug addictions. It's true. There can be a lot more pushback when it comes to the phone. And some parents are like, well, you know, even if my kid does occasionally do drugs, it's occasional and they leave it behind the phone. They go to bed with their phone. You know, it is it's... always there. And it, you know, does. Well, I say I hope, you know, it's the case where it's like, yeah, I hope phones are the reason because, you know, that means like, hey, we've actually right. made a dent in drug use at the same time. It's something we need to be careful. And it's with. and it's a new drug. Yeah. And it's but it's a it's a highly acceptable drug and it can actually deliver other drugs. Yeah. It can deliver other forms of drugs or addictions. Is this the drug that Huey Lewis was talking about when he said he wanted a new drug? Yeah, I think this was it. He yeah. Cell phones. Smartphones. So six and a half hours of screen time per day with our kids. But and and adults are they they like dopamine pumps just as much. Yeah. Um, And, you know, you'd think college students are using phones just as much, if not more. Right. um, Along with just screen time in general with their computers. I mean, I'm always on my computer, but the drug use trends have not changed right um in those um you know older groups and i don't you know we don't know specifically why that is um but they, it's specifically having an influence they've they also um are looking at the fact that husbands wives marriages are touching less mm-hmm. less sex in marriage and they're attributing it to cell phones yeah because, i mean they're again, in the why? way of everything yeah. you you can just have something to distract you mm-hmm. to keep you entertained you know to feel connection or, you know, yeah. at least some kind of and, pseudo connection right. with people via social media. So why take the energy to, like, go out and talk to the people around you? Interesting. Plus, I guess it's the same effect as you're somebody that's really a, a drug addict. They're not building relationships. Mm-hmm. They're not building connections. But if you're addicted to your phone, you think you've got connections. Yeah. But if you're all sitting around, I've even seen my kids with their friends, they'll just go, instead of sitting around a room talking and, you know, throwing ideas out, what should we do? Let's do this, do this. They'll do that. But they'll also have gaps and moments where they just sit there and everyone's on their un- their their device. Yeah. Though along those lines, one really cool benefit I saw of this and possibly one of the reasons drug use is down is in the past, you know, if you were at a party or you were with friends and somebody, you know, pulled out a joint. Yeah. There was a lot of social pressure to join in because that's what everybody was doing. Now phones, you know, s- kids are citing them as an excuse to not participate uh, because they can just step this. away yeah. and play on their Interesting. phone. And it's okay to be checked out if you're on your phone. Yeah. And that way they're able to say, I, I don't want to do drugs right now with you and not suffer the consequences. That's oh, oh, mind-bending. McKenna Bouse is her name. Bouse in the house. Thanks, McKenna. little mind-blower there. You killed us. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. It's the House of Bows. 